This week's Creepscast is sponsored by Audible. Listen to Daniel X Genesis today at audible.com slash genesis. And HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps16 and use code MrCreeps16 for 16 free meals across 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. It's crazy to say that this is the 90th episode of Creepscast. Thank you all so much for listening and to the amazing authors that provide many of these stories. Without you guys, it wouldn't be possible. So, let's do what we do best and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I watched a video of a Japanese forest at night. The cameraman wasn't alone. Written by Trash Tia. I'm sorry. I keep saying this. I keep saying it out loud and then typing it like it means something. I am so sorry. Before I tell you this, I want you to know that I'm currently sleep deprived. I didn't sleep at all last night, and I'm trying to write all this down before I go and see someone. I'm not sure who this someone is going to be. Maybe a friend or my parents. A psychiatrist, I don't know. Hopefully, you will know what to do. I don't want to pile all of this on you. I just don't know what to do myself. I've thought about it and tried to come up with some kind of solution. Or maybe a way to prove that I'm crazy and imagined all of this. I've been trying to figure out where I would put it. But again, I don't know. God, I don't even know why I'm writing this. Nobody is going to believe me. Not in a place where all of you are familiar with this kind of stuff. I guess I should start by saying that I already suffer from insomnia. I tried listening to podcasts, white noise, and even whale noises. According to pretty much every article on insomnia that I can find, they're supposed to be the solution. Well, they're not the solution. If anything, they make it harder for me to sleep. So, I tried podcasts, but the talking just distracts me from sleeping, and I end up paying attention to whatever is being said. White noise gives me headaches and playing Netflix on low sentences me to nightlong binges of reality TV shows. Nothing was working. I go on YouTube a lot. I watch videos before and after work and during meals so it's pretty much my substitute for TV. It's pretty much like every other person my age I guess. I watch a variety of things. Whether that's movie reviews, cooking videos, or introspective video essays about everything from Sailor Moon to Gossip Girl. It was during my endless scrolling when I came across. Rainy day in Osaka, Japan. No talking. Curious, I clicked on it. I had always been curious about Japan. I have friends who want to move there purely for the food and the culture, and I take a Duolingo class. It seems like a beautiful country, and the video showed me exactly what it said in the title. A real-life perspective of walking through Osaka. After sitting through that one, I found myself clicking on more. There was night and day, nightlife and rush hour. I got sucked in. I wanted to know the lives of everybody who walked past the camera, every glance, whether that was a man, woman, or child. 
I found it fascinating that I could be in my bedroom in the middle of the night, huddled under my blankets with my headphones in, and with the click of a button, I was on the other side of the world, sidestepping an old woman holding an umbrella, or a dog walker casting a smile my way under blooming cherry blossoms. I admit, I got addicted, not just because they were fun and therapeutic to watch, but they also sent me to sleep. These videos were a blessing. Last night was the usual. I curled up in bed and set up my laptop on my cupboard. I wanted something different so I typed in Japan and ASMR, and about a dozen videos popped up. Most of them were at a million views and were either vloggers or stream VODs, but one video caught my eye. It was right at the bottom and was sitting at just over a thousand views. The thumbnail was a 1080p quality image of looming trees in darkness, swallowing up whatever was in the distance. I recognized the name in the title. Until then, I had been avoiding videos featuring the infamous Japanese forest. The videos that I've watched are either incredibly insensitive influencers trying to make a scare for content, or a serious looking docu-series following the history. This video looked like the usual. The title was in both Japanese and English. Walking through Aokigara Forest at night. No talking, 4D. And after hesitating for a moment, I decided to click on it and see what it was. The video, to my surprise, was almost two and a half years old. It was uploaded on February 9th, 2020. It had two likes and the dislikes were hidden. I clicked play and watched for a while. The video started with a POV shot of a small apartment with cream walls and rustic furniture. The cameraman showed himself putting on his shoes and then his jacket and locking his door. The video jumped then to him getting out of his car and showing the parking lot in front of Aokigara. It was perfect quality. I lay back and got comfy, satisfied with the crunching sounds of his boots on gravel, and then the thumping of him walking up wooden steps. He did an immaculate job of showing everything. I saw every moment in the trees and in the ground, skittering insects in the soil. The sound quality was good too. I was listening to the night, and the night sounded beautiful, so peaceful. As the POV trail began and the man's breathing grew heavy from walking, I started to drift to sleep, lulled by the soft crunch of his shoes through the terrain. The shot itself was well lit with a flashlight, illuminating an eerie pathway through tangled branches, which almost looked like they were coming out of the screen when he got close enough to one. At one point, I had to blink rapidly to make sure that he hadn't shoved the camera into a tree, because the maze of branches entangled dancing in the dark. Meokigara had always been at the pit of scary stories that my friends had told around a campfire, or legends and myths detailing supernatural goings-on, as well as the very real tragic incidents the forest has become infamous for. However, all I saw was beauty. I saw night in all of its vulnerability, allowing me access to every crevice of this tragically beautiful forest. At first, I couldn't fall asleep, 
I was slipping initially, but I kept getting intrigued by the sudden snapping of branches and crunching growing louder, like there was someone behind the camera. When he reached his sign, zooming in on what looked like instructions detailed in hiragana and katakana, I heard something. It wasn't the man's shoes because he wasn't moving. Before I could really think about it though, he turned and continued on the trail. But he hadn't gone far before that same noise. Footsteps. They were in the trees, at least, three sets of them. The guy didn't seem to notice and nothing else happened for a proportion of the video. I closed my eyes once again. For a while, I was drifting in and out, occasionally slipping back to consciousness to see nothing had changed. I was getting used to the sound of the man's footsteps, before a voice. It came out of nowhere, and in the middle of the forest at night, nobody else would be walking this trail. My interest was piqued. The voice was a low murmur at first, more of a whisper in the trees easily mistaken for a breeze. Then though, it was breaking the sound barrier, as well as the tranquil silence of night. A shiver crept down my spine. The voice didn't belong. It didn't make sense that it existed right there in the middle of nowhere, but it did, and it was real. Excuse me. The voice was a guy, my age or maybe a little younger. He had an accent, British. My mate, do you mind giving us a little help? His words lingered in my mind for far too long. Us. There were more of them. I stared at the screen and waited for someone to appear matching the voice, but there was nobody there. The cameraman didn't seem to notice and continued on the trail. Hey, look, I don't speak a lot of Japanese and... There was incoherent mumbling. Oh, so it's my third time here and I know I should be practically fluent by now, but I'm not. The voice seemed to be lost in the trees and wanted branches and brush. His voice was getting louder though, until I couldn't deny its existence anymore. And a shadow suddenly bound out of the trees and stepped into the glow of the flashlight. At first, there was no discernible identity. The camera focused on a face lit up in saturation before slowly a person bled through the blur. It was a guy. Just a guy. I don't know how to describe him. He had dark hair poking under a bright green hooded sweatshirt and freckles. He looked out of breath but flashed the camera a friendly smile. Oh, cool. What are you filming? The camera guy ignored him to my surprise. So he stepped in front of the camera, offering a shy wave. Hi, he said. Look, I don't really know how we got here, honestly. He laughed nervously. Japan's kind of crazy, right? You're standing outside a bar one minute and then you're freaking trekking through a forest. Once again, he was ignored, and I could tell that he was growing frustrated, but his smile only pricked wider. Anyway, standing shot, the guy cleared his throat. We don't know a lot of Japanese between us and we're wondering if you speak English, and if you do, that would be incredibly helpful, because reading the signs in this forest is driving us crazy. And we're extremely lost, and hey. Even I was getting irritated with the camera guy's ignorance. I understood language barriers, but surely, 
he understood at least part of what the foreigner was saying. Okay, Freckles blew out a breath. You don't understand what I'm saying, but if you could, if you could just stop for a moment. We're lost and we could really do with some help, like seriously. We don't even know how we got here and... He staggered back when the cameraman took a turn further into the woods. But the kid wasn't giving up, I noticed. He followed, motioning for two shadows that I could glimpse at the corner of the camera to follow. I started to wonder if the cameraman was scared of these guys, or if he just didn't speak English at all. There was that, but there was also the possibility that he just didn't want to talk to him. Freckles did everything to try and get noticed, and he failed him miserably every time. It was kind of entertaining. Noah, another voice sounded, this time American. I detected a southern accent in a tone, which sounded far less chipper than Freckles. Hey, stop. Another man appeared seemingly out of nowhere, joining Noah's side. He was taller, a darker skin complexion, wearing a t-shirt with inappropriate art on the front. He's not going to help us, he said with gritted teeth. Think about it. He's a guy just casually cruising a forest in the middle of the night, and we're random strangers. Of course he's going to be wary. The young man elbowed Noah. Besides, we haven't tried my tactic yet. Noah rolled his eyes. In the exposure of the flashlight's glare, I counted four freckles on each cheek. Ah, oh, Jesus, he groaned. You're going to get us arrested. So... Isn't getting arrested better than being stuck in a cursed forest? It's not cursed. And then why are we stuck, huh? I've seen the same tree six times. That's an exaggeration. You're an exaggeration. Your mom's an exaggeration. Both of them scoffed and started laughing. And I found myself enjoying their stupid back and forth. As their back and forth continued, the two followed up the cameraman occasionally diving in front of the camera. Okay, so, the guy with the weird art on his shirt joined the camera guy's side. Do you have a phone? He attempted broken Japanese, and his effort was pretty good, even if I couldn't understand what he was saying. I think he was asking if the guy had a phone or something that they could call for help with. He tried his best, but apparently it wasn't enough. At that point, I was used to the cameraman's response. Complete ignorance. He kept walking, his breath labored. I noticed the man was heading deeper and deeper into the trees. I was sure that hikers usually turned around at some point, but this guy's destination was anyone's guess. A third guy came into view a little while later, when I noticed a dip in the ground, far rockier and harder to walk on but he was more subdued and he kept to himself, only offering quiet laughs at Noah and his friend. The mood, however, grew progressively sour as their footsteps fell in sync with the cameraman. Every so often, Noah would start whistling and then planting himself in front of the cameraman. I could tell by the crease in his expression and the scowl in his lips that he was through playing around. Looking closer and then pausing the video, I could almost mistake a look of feral desperation in his eyes. He really wanted out of there. Mate, he said, for probably the third time, this is getting ridiculous. 
He choked out a laugh as the three of them followed the cameraman, their frenzied footsteps crunching through the earth. I mean, where are you even going? Hey, chill. The soft-spoken guy finally spoke in a murmur. Poor guy's probably trying to get away from us. Noah made a noise to protest, tripping over a branch. Well, what does he expect? He hissed. He's completely ignoring us. And what, filming some YouTube video? Is making movies really that important for this guy? Come on, this is so stupid. The guy cursed when he fell back, regaining his balance at the last minute. He's like 50, he grumbled, falling in step with the other two. What does he even need it for? The three of them continued like that for a while. They argued for and against attempting to grab the guy's phone, but they ended up just following the cameraman, hoping that he would at some point acknowledge them. I understood that they were lost and needed help, but part of me was screaming at them to just turn around and attempt to figure it out themselves. This guy just did not care, and clearly was on a mission they had no business joining. I realized that when they stepped through a small clearing, following the camera guy, there was something hidden in the trees, and the closer that the camera got, I realized that I was staring at a small wooden cabin. It looked homemade and was dainty enough to be hidden in the trees, far away from the trail. When the cameraman stopped for a moment, surveying a door made of blanks, the three guys seemed to come to an abrupt stop. In the eerie glow of the flashlight, a wave of emotion washed over Noah's expression, though I couldn't catch a single one. His eyes, which until then had been almost permanently rolling in frustration, as he spat sarcasm at the others, it grew dark, hollow even. It was the kind of darkness I didn't know or understand. Not the darkness enveloping the forest and sky, more of an endless stretch of oblivion which was inescapable. But as fast as it had come, the hollowness had faded and he shook his head. Noah pursed his lips and stepped back with a laugh. Nope, he said. Yeah, no, I'm not going in there. He walked over to the door and pulled off a cheap-looking sign which said, Home sweet home. Noah rolled his eyes. I'm not an idiot. This stuff in the middle of nowhere. He waved the sign. Yeah, this guy's definitely got skeletons in his closet. Agreed. The other friend muttered. His gaze was stuck to the door, his lips twitching. We should probably get going. The third quieter one didn't speak, and I could barely see him. Just a glimmer of dark hair and a baseball cap behind Noah. I watched him take several steps back, before gesturing to the others to follow. There's nothing here, he finally said stiffly. Another American. We should go. I could sense the panic in his voice. Now. Noah laughed. Well, duh, that's why we're going. Lighten up, would ya? The third guy sighed. I'll lighten up when we're far away from here. Noah saluted the cameraman. Hey, thanks for nothing, dude. You really helped. Good luck with your YouTube career. Could have just told us to screw off, but sure. The two of them fell in line with the third guy. What do you think he's doing out here? I don't know. Definitely shady. The three of them disappeared into the trees. 
and all I heard was their back and forth and laughter, before a sharp breeze drowned them out completely. Now that he was alone, the cameraman headed into the cabin. It looked as cozy as a cabin in the middle of the woods could look. There was a threaded couch and a rug and a small closet where he kicked off his shoes and pulled off his jacket, throwing them inside. Before he shut the door, I caught something, and the taco that I had before bed crawled right back up my throat. Blinking rapidly, I paused the video, and then I leaned in and squinted so I was making sure what I was seeing was really there. It was, I mean. I looked at it from every angle. I paused and played the video until I was absolutely certain. Underneath all of the man's coats and hats and shoes was a sweater with some inappropriate art on it. I knew that it was the same one because the camera quality gave me that luxury. I noticed when he was wearing it there was a slight tear at the bottom. I was staring at the exact same one. But that wasn't all. When I really looked, when I dragged the video forwards and backwards, I could see Converse caked in dirt, a baseball cap, and a bright green hoodie. When I sat back, the world swam around me. I could have turned it off, I could have shut my laptop, gotten under my blankets, and forced myself to sleep. But I didn't. I pressed play, and the cameraman headed into the tiny living area that he had made himself before kneeling on the ground, taking the camera with him. His fingers gripped at worn wooden planks and ripped them away, revealing a hole in the ground, and in that hole was plastic. I paused it again. The hole was filled with plastic bags. When I played it, however, and he started pulling them out, revealing what was really there, my heart sank into my gut and my mouth filled with something acidic, something strong enough to trigger my gag reflex. I was seeing expensive leather combined with iPhones and passports. The man surprised me by finally making a noise. A sharp squeak of hysterics, rolling off his tongue in panting guffaws. It was the sound of an animal before a meal. A ravenous growl. As he grabbed hold of the pile of belongings, dipping his fingers in them and pulling them out. His laughter growing more and more horrifying. There was a point when I closed my laptop and buried my head on my knees. It's not real, I kept thinking. It's not real, it's not real. But no matter how many times I lied to myself, I knew that what I saw was reality. I just couldn't help it. Now that I had seen traces of the truth, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know this man's filthy secret. The video followed on as a normal with him sitting down and taking out a flask before swigging it. He started laughing again and he didn't stop until his flask was empty. I waited for him to do something else, but the video jumped. It was bad editing, an attempt at stitching footage together. This time I wasn't looking at his cabin in the middle of Okigahara. I was in the same apartment the video had started in. Something ice cold slid down my spine when I recognized Noah, the friend and the nameless third one sitting around a wooden table, strewn with bottles of sake. The three of them were clearly drunk, but also bewildered and confused why they were even there. 
I had heard about these kind of scams before. Tourists being lured into cult-like groups only to be scammed of all their cash. This, though, looked more personal, like they were visiting the man. They looked out of place. Three foreigners inside a quiet shoebox apartment. The third friend had a glitter on his cheek from what seemed like a night out, and the other had a bath towel around his head. Noah was frowning at something on the table, and I recognized it. What is this? Noah picked up the same sign with Home Sweet Home in colorful italics. He turned to face the others, his lips curling into a smile. Hey, so when I turn 25, will I automatically just start to like these? He waved the sign, mocking me. No, the third guy said through a mouthful of drink. He shot Noah a spiteful smile. You're a Gen Z, you'll never change. Oh, good. Noah dropped the sign. I would rather die than live, laugh, love. God, the other one's head hit the table. I'm gonna be sick. Noah jumped up, grabbing a bottle of sake and downing it like water. I winced when he pulled a face like he had sucked a lemon. Hey, we're gonna get going, he announced, desperately trying not to slur his words. Are we? Yeah, if you want to get back to the hotel and not get murdered by a tour guide. The cameraman sat silently filming everything, and that only made me feel sicker. When the footage jumped forwards again, the living room had a lot of color to it. The sweater friend was lying on his stomach, a knife perforating his neck, a seemingly endless stream of scarlet pooling underneath him and dripping onto the floor. This is the part I didn't fully watch, well, because I couldn't. The act was showed in graphic detail, over and over again like it was meant to be showed to someone, like this was someone's punishment. In flickering shots only differential from the amount of red on the couch and table, I saw Noah passed out on the sofa, his eyes opening and mouth widening, before the same knife was used on him and plunged into his stomach. Over and over again like a movie, the man didn't stop. He left the camera rolling until the two of them were masses of scarlet and bubbling flesh on a cream carpet. The worst thing is, I didn't see what he really did to them. I only saw pieces. I just knew that they suffered. I knew that what he had done was endless until they had begged to die. I was shown in glimpses. The friend kneeling over Noah and yelling something, his mouth open in a silent, tragic scream. I didn't hear it. He had muted them. He only showed what he wanted me or anyone else to see. The soft-spoken guy bled into the footage towards the end. I don't think that he knew. I think he went to the bathroom or maybe to crash somewhere. His eyes, his expression. When seeing the scene in front of him, it'll haunt me for the rest of my life. And this time, the man didn't take his time like the other two. The third friend dove over the couch and attempted to get to the other side. But the man grabbed his leg and yanked him to the ground. But he was ready, rolling onto his back and crawling grasping at the fiber of the carpet, his hands pooling red from trying to staunch the wound in his friend's neck which was past saving. I don't want to type this, but I think the guy gave up. Something in him had snapped and he stopped trying to get away, only curling into a ball and attempting to shield the cameraman's frenzied heads. 
He missed most of them, thank God. The psycho's momentum was fading. When he realized that he wasn't going to get anywhere by stabbing, he grabbed the guy by the hair, wrenched his head back, and plunged the blade into his eye. At that point, I finally threw up what I had been burning in my throat. I didn't need to watch more. I didn't have to. But I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop, so what does that say about me? It was like being in a trance. The world around me didn't seem real. I lost all sense of smell and touch. It was around the time the man had filmed himself, putting them in the bathtub, when it hit me that this was all for entertainment. I didn't know for who. His, some sicko who would like the video. But he had filmed, edited, and put this together for someone to watch. For someone to watch him drink what was left of them after he had blended them and put them into his flask. He filmed himself cleaning everything up and gathering belongings before heading into his little cabin in the forest. The man stopped at a tree before emptying the flask. And then he did it several more times, and the more that I watched, I could feel my brain starting to unravel, my body finally catching up to it. Finally, the man threw their clothes inside his closet and stuffed their phones and passports under the floorboards. He started laughing again, more and more hysterically like a cartoon. He walked out into broad daylight and inhaled and then exhaled, and I swore that I could hear voices. Hey, excuse me, can you tell us where we are? We're, uh, we're kind of lost. Hey, dude, I'm talking to you. You don't have to ignore us. Seriously, you're just going to walk right past us. Hey. I was barely aware of the video once again jumping forwards. It was raining, and the world was lit up in dull blues and vivid reds. The camera's POV was an alleyway filled with stories, crowds of people walking in groups or individually. The man stood under an umbrella. His attention was first in the ramen shop and then a girl walking past, clutching textbooks to her chest. Before it flicked to a group of people laughing and joking, some of them holding bottles. He seemed to be waiting for something. When the crowd dispersed, I glimpsed a familiar bright green hoodie. Noah, standing in the rain with his head up, high-fiving a girl with blonde pigtails and a wide grin. The two of them were talking and they seemed close, his head on her shoulder. The girl said something which looked like, I'll be right back, and wandered back into the bar. And Noah leaned against the wall and tipped his head back, frowning at the sky. I already knew what the man was going to do. He did it in three strides, planting himself in front of Noah. He said something in Japanese, but when Noah frowned in confusion, his gaze no doubt wandering for someone to help him. The man laughed heartily. Free drinks, he said. And then he said it repeatedly until a drunken Noah's eyes lit up with intrigue. Free drinks? The boy's expression pricked before the other two joined him. The second friend and the third one. They had no idea, I thought. The camera lingered on Noah's face, almost like a tease. He smiled, and the camera zoomed right into his mouth, like this had been the punchline all along. Whoa, who wouldn't want free drinks? After that, the video ended, followed by a text. World's Funniest Movies, Part 1.
I would like to extend a large thank you to this week's Creepscast sponsor, Audible. James Patterson's Thrilling Adventure series gets an exclusive audio-only origin story in Daniel Axe Genesis, brought to life by an all-star cast. Daniel is an ordinary teenager just trying to fit in at school when he suddenly finds out, on his 16th birthday no less, that he's anything but ordinary. Not only is he an alien, but he has superpowers that let him conjure anything that he wants. And it turns out that his parents didn't die in a car accident, but they were killed in an epic battle with an intergalactic villain. So those superpowers are just what Daniel needs to join the fight, if he can muster the courage to save the human race. It's a fast-paced, funny, fully immersive adventure featuring performances by Michael Asimino. Abigail Breslin, Mercedes Rule, Jimmy Simpson, and many more. You can find it only on Audible. Listen at audible.com slash genesis. Again, that's audible.com slash genesis. Thank you to Audible for sponsoring this week's episode. I work as a park ranger. I'm the worst in the world. Written by Horror Writer 1717. I hate being a park ranger. There, I said it. It's nice to finally get it off my chest. It's not like there's any one specific thing that makes it so bad. It's a combination. The pay sucks, the health insurance is non-existent. And dear God, don't ever forget to hose yourself down with bug spray during the warmer months. I have a case of it that I keep in my car. I found out the hard way when I was down at the lake and was set upon by a swarm of mosquitoes. And the ticks get into places that you wouldn't imagine. These are the minor annoyances. There is also the other part of the job, the dangerous part. I'm not talking about people being idiots and having to swoop down from the top of a ravine to rescue them. Yeah, I mean that's there. In my opinion, that's called a natural selection. If they were close enough to the edge to fall, then that's on them. No, I'm not talking about those incidents either. I'm talking about the real danger. I'm not supposed to say anything, but I'm tired of the code of silence. That's why I'm posting this here. Now it goes without saying that I won't use anybody's real name, including the park that I work at. That should keep me out of trouble. I started working here as a park ranger around a year ago. It seemed nice at first to get out and enjoy nature. I'm sure nature would laugh at that since she seems to be set on killing people. Between storms, falling trees, landslides, wildfires, and not to mention cryptids, nature is not exactly man's best friend, at least in this park. Every evening at dusk, some of us rangers drive around to the trailheads to make sure that there are no cars sitting around. If there is, we take the license number and call the police to see if the person had been reported missing. If there are no cars there, we lock up the gates. On this evening, I had just finished locking the gate down by the lake. It had been a while since I had been near any restrooms and the nearest one was a half mile away. I was responsible for this side of the lake, so I knew no other rangers would be around. I looked left and right, 
then whipped out and added a little more fluid to the lake. As I was relieving myself, this huge, hairy creature stepped out of the forest, around 50 feet away from me, and it approached the lake. It bent over, pulling water out of the lake with its massive hands, and bringing it up to its mouth to drink. After about the third handful, it looked over and noticed me for the first time. It saw what I was doing, and then it spat the mouthful of water back into the lake. We both froze. Do you know that oh crap moment when you catch someone doing something that they shouldn't at the same time you're doing something that you shouldn't? Like when you're on duty and coming out of the liquor store with a brown bag and you see a coworker buying a bag of weed. You both stare at each other hoping that the other one will be the one to feel guilty and walk away first. But neither of you does. You just stand there. That's what we did. We just stood there looking at each other, this creature and I. Now was I scared? Heck yeah, I was scared. This thing was freaking huge. Do you remember that part in Star Wars where Han tells a 3PO that Wookiees are known to rip people's arms out of their sockets? Well, that's what I was thinking this thing might do. I mean, it was big enough to give Chewie a swirly. The thought of my arms being forcefully and painfully removed from my body bounced around in my head so much that I started sweating. They say that animals can smell fear. I bet I smelled like I had just walked out of a Saw movie marathon. Neither one of us moved. Me out of total terror, him out of... How the heck should I know what that thing was thinking? All I knew was that it wasn't running away. I didn't take that as a good sign. I took that as him looking at me and someone in the background ringing the dinner bell. Finally, after a long moment of this insane standoff, my shaking hand reached for my phone. Much to my surprise and relief, it took off into the woods at inhuman speed. Against my better judgment, I followed as best I could but soon lost sight of it. I came back to the shoreline and found huge footprints. I took pictures with my phone and went to the station to show everyone. That's super, Ron said with a laugh. Did you get a picture of the Tooth Fairy too? The room erupted with laughter as all the rangers, even the ones that I had considered to be friends, had turned on me. No, that would be a fay, said Sharon, not a Sasquatch. Don't you know anything, Ron? Did it give you any beef jerky? Jeff said, causing the group to erupt with even more laughter. Oh no, come on, Nancy said. Let's be realistic. My hope soared that someone might actually believe me. You don't really think there's any beef in that jerky, do you? Nancy said. My hopes crashed down again. Hey, shut up all you idiots. Dell said, pulling me aside. Let me see that phone. I handed it to him, feeling my hopes rise again. He looked through the pictures one by one. His face was set. I couldn't read his emotions. He didn't seem to react with surprise or disbelief. When he was done looking through them, he scrolled back and deleted every picture that had anything to do with the creature. What the heck? I said, grabbing my phone. I'm doing you a favor, he said. 
You don't want to go down that road. It only leads to bad things. I stared at my phone in shock. I couldn't believe that somebody that I had trusted, someone that I'd looked up to, the most senior ranger in the station, he had just destroyed evidence of this mythical creature's existence. But it was real. I saw it. Chuckles sounded from around the room. Dell turned and silenced them with a look. Why don't you take tomorrow off and get your head clear? He said. I found myself nodding and not really sure why, as he guided me out of the station toward my car. Hey, enjoy yourself, he said. Go do something relaxing. You've had a hard day. I started toward my car, Dell watching me the entire time. As soon as he had stepped back inside, I could hear another roar of laughter. I knew that it was at my expense. I got into my car in a daze. It wasn't until I looked at my phone that I realized just how violated I felt. I drove home and sat in the kitchen staring at the wall. I know that I saw it, I kept telling myself. I pondered what to do with no evidence and no one to back me up. But an idea came to me. I started looking for Bigfoot traps online. I looked up how to trap a Bigfoot and got some very interesting ideas. The next day, I went and bought some bear traps. When I drove to work the following morning, I got there early and quietly transferred my bear traps to the state truck that I would be using that day. I went inside and greeted the other rangers. They all seemed aloof, holding back like they were waiting for something to happen. I rounded the corner to the lockers and found out what. My locker had been covered in Bigfoot pictures. There was even one with a picture of a naked woman and Chewbacca's head taped over hers. The caption written it said, Come find me, big boy. This is why I hate people. I did my best to ignore as the titters and chuckles sounded behind me. I said nothing and I went to my truck. I sat there for a long time trying to get the rage to bleed off, but all I could think of was revenge. That taught me the hard lesson. Just keep your mouth shut. I learned that lesson well, but the damage is already done. The other rangers were already calling me a freak and a joke. That upset me, but also strengthened my resolve. It would have been easy to quit right there, but I was determined to prove myself. That I was as good as they were. That I wasn't crazy. That this thing really existed. As the man said, two out of three ain't bad. I started patrolling down by the lake more often, looking for my prey where I had seen it last. But I had the sinking suspicion that it was watching me, that it knew that I was hunting it. I tried to be nonchalant about it at first. I would drive by looking around like a good ranger should. But after a while, I started getting impatient. I would spend more time there than the rest of my route. It got to the point where people would come up to me and ask for help but I would ignore them or shuttle them off to another ranger. I started getting proactive in my hunt. I found a deer carcass near the place that I had seen the creature and I set the bear traps up around it. And then I staked out the area and I waited. For a long time. People came up to me, I ignored them. Animals came up to me and I ignored them. 
The only thing I was focused on was finding my prey. Morning turned to afternoon and turned to evening with no results. I sighed in resignation when it came time to close the gates. I decided to go home and let the traps do the work for me. The next morning I overslept and I drove like a madman to get to work, more specifically to get back to my stakeout. Imagine my surprise when I came back and found that I had caught something in my trap. A fellow ranger. Ron lay on the ground screaming and I went over to help him. Are you okay? I said. No, you idiot. I have a giant metal jaw attached to my leg, he said. I fumbled with the trap, trying to get it open, only to have it snap shut on his leg again. Jesus, what the heck are you doing? He said. Are you too stupid to even open a trap? I stopped and looked at him. Well, at least I'm not stupid enough to step into one. Hey, screw you. I stood up to leave. Where are you going? I whipped around on him. Screw you, I said. I come over here to help you and you're treating me like some piece of crap. Get out of your own dang trap. I started walking away. Okay, he said. I stopped and turned. Okay, what? Okay, I'm sorry. Will you please help me get out of this trap? I paused for a moment and then went back. Alright, I've never opened a trap before. I lied. Tell me what to do. Well, these are the springs, he said. Press down on them and it'll open the jaws. Once the jaws were open, he pulled his injured leg free. Thank God, he said checking out his injured leg. Who put that trap there anyway? No clue, I lied. I drove Ron straight to the hospital to get him taken care of. Once he was in the room and being treated, I laughed. But there was the matter of the illegal bear trap that had injured a park ranger. Dell was not happy. He pulled me into his office. Man, I can't believe this happened, he said. I've known Ron for years. He's a good friend and a good ranger. The person responsible for this is going to pay. I'll see him strung up by his entrails. Yes, sir, I said. This should never happen on park grounds. It's a deliberate attack and I won't rest until I see Ron's killer behind bars. He's not dead, sir. Whatever, you get the point, he said. And what do you know about this? Me, I said feigning ignorance. Why would you ask me? He shot me a steely glare. You know exactly why, he said. I was feeling the metaphorical handcuffs that click closed around my wrist. Because you didn't listen to me and let this Bigfoot thing go, he said. Other rangers have seen you hanging around where you saw that thing. I'm thinking maybe you saw the person who set that trap. I took a breath, feeling the cuffs fall off my wrist. Well, there have been a few unsavory types hanging around, I said. Well, I want you to track him down and find out who did this to one of my rangers, he said, slamming his fist on his desk. Yes, sir, I said as I walked out of his office. I couldn't believe it. I was off the hook. I was in charge of my own investigation. Stopping to think about it, it made perfect sense why he chose me. It was a crap job that no one else wanted to do but I was going to do it to my absolute best of ability. I thought sarcastically. Yes, sir, 
I won't rest until I'm brought to justice. You can count on me, sir. I waited until I was a mile down the road before I started laughing. I went to the crime scene and explored it very carefully. Back and forth, over and over, I went through the area until there were no tracks anywhere that weren't mine. Of course, the only tracks before were mine too, and of course, Ron's. As an added bonus to tracking myself, I was able to do it in the area of the sighting, continuing my search for the creature. It was a win-win for me. Thank you, Ron, you piece of crap, for blundering into that trap and giving me the best assignment that I could have possibly have, I thought. As the days went by and I looked for myself in vain, I came across an area not too far from the lake where there was a cave with a well-worn path to it. At first I thought it was a bear cave, but then I found a couple of the tracks that had been deleted off my phone by a certain ranger. I took pictures of the tracks and made sure that I sent them to myself by email. And I also kept my mouth shut about it, at least to my idiot co-workers. My mind playfully wondered how many more I could trick into a bear trap, or maybe something worse. I smiled as I chided myself for such thoughts. Suddenly, I felt that something was wrong. The birds had stopped singing. I turned to find the creature standing four feet from me. I was amazed at how silent it had moved, but my amazement quickly gave way to fear as a yellow river ran down the inside of my pants. It was even more huge up close, at least eight feet tall and completely covered in brown fur. It had bared its teeth and was flexing its massive hands. For some reason, I don't think that it liked me very much. Hey, go figure. It lunged at me with impossible speed. I tried to dodge, but my boot got stuck on a tree root and I tripped. I fell backward and landed hard on my back, knocking the wind out of me. I laid there helpless at the mercy of this beast. All it had to do was carry me into its cave and I would never be seen again, except for in smelly little piles hours later on. That was a happy thought. I tried to regain my normal breathing, surprised that it hadn't dragged me away yet. As I came around and the stars floated around my head turned back into trees, I saw the creature laying face down a few yards from me. I rose slowly and approached it. I could see its back rising and falling, so I knew that it was still breathing. I took out my phone and took pictures, just in case it didn't kill me, or in case it got up and ran away. I even leaned close and took a selfie with it in the background. Just then, it took a slightly deeper breath and I skittered away. When it didn't jump up and rip my arms out of my sockets, I took a closer look. There was a little blood laying beside its head, which was laying on top of a big rock. Apparently, when it had lunged at me, it wasn't counting on me falling and it dove right into the rock, and it knocked itself out cold. This was it. The golden goose had pulled a muscle in its wing while it flew over me and landed in my lap. I ran to the truck and grabbed the tranquilizer gun and a lot of netting. As I ran back, the thought of it not being there drove me to distraction. All my hard work of looking into this perfect scenario would have been for nothing. 
I ran as fast as I could, carrying a big net on my back, and I prayed that it was still there. When I got there, it was stirring and trying to get up. I dropped the net and fumbled with the train gun, nearly shooting myself in the process until I finally aimed. It saw me just as I pointed the gun at it. Our eyes locked. It was a magical moment until I squeezed the trigger and sent him back to La La Land. He probably wasn't going to be very happy when he woke up though. Plus, I accidentally shot him in the crotch. I made sure to reload the gun just in case and then tried to roll him over onto the netting. He felt like he weighed a thousand pounds. I racked my brain on how to get him out of there and eventually came up with a solution. I backed the truck up through a half mile of trees, leaving scratches on the sides and almost leaving a rearview mirror behind. I managed to get close enough to hook the net out of the trailer hitch. I dragged him out to the road and stopped to figure out my next move. My house was about 10 miles away. If I dragged him the whole way, all I would have left would be a Bigfoot burger. I couldn't lift him and it was after hours so. There was no one else around to help me get him into the bed. Not that I really wanted anybody else seeing him. I panned around and I found the solution. There was a small embankment about four feet high. I drove the truck onto it and then drove very carefully straight down it. I was terrified that I would flip the truck end over end and that would be the end of my little adventure. But I just kept moving slowly as the front wheels touched down and kept going. Next was the tricky part. I got the back wheels on the ground and then gunned it forward and slammed it in reverse. His head was hanging over the edge when I backed up and I accidentally pinned it between the truck gate and the dirt bank. I pulled forward a little and grabbed the netting, pulling with every ounce of strength that I had. Ever so slowly his prone body inched forward until he had reached the tipping point and rolled into the truck's bed. When he flopped down, one of his feet hit the back window and shattered it. Great, I thought. Hey boss, when I was capturing the creature you said doesn't exist in the company vehicle, oh yeah, I broke the window. Is that covered by our insurance? I was breathing hard until I was done. I covered him with a tarp and drove away, racking my brain about where I would take him. As I was thinking, I passed a storage unit that was somewhat remote. It was just off the back road that I was on, and it didn't seem like a lot of traffic passed this way. I called up and rented a unit with my credit card, and then showed up and backed the truck up to it. My cargo was starting to stir again as I arrived, so I gave it another dose of the trank and I dragged it off the truck as best I could, meaning that it flopped over and nearly crushed me. Then not at all of it was inside and I couldn't close the door. So I turned the truck around and gently pushed it inside with the front bumper before closing and locking the door. Next came the tricky part. I couldn't go on Craigslist and advertise. One Bigfoot slightly used, 50 million or best offer. Fortunately, I knew a guy who had a cousin's brother who knew another guy's best friend who knew someone who knew someone else who might be able to get me in contact with someone who doesn't exist. I printed a few of the pictures, wrote a number with a lot of zeros in it, and sent it through the information chain. I got a phone call two hours later from someone who doesn't exist, 
He met me at the storage unit with a lot of heavily armed men and dressed in black combat gear and no identifying patches. When we got there, the door was under attack. It had lots of newly formed dents in it and the sides were looking like they weren't going to hold much longer. My friend apparently had woken up and wasn't very happy with his new surroundings. I offered to open the door just an inch and hit him with another trank dart, but the man waved me off. The heavily armed gentlemen worked with practiced precision. They flung open the door and threw a containment net over him as he tried to run past them. Within moments, he was incapacitated. As they carried him out, his eyes landed on me. They narrowed and he let out a menacing growl. I'd say you made a new friend. The man said, handing me a business card with a number on it and nothing else. What's this for? I said. If you come across any more creatures of such a mythical nature, give me a call. Maybe we can help with the capture of the next one. Are you nuts? I said. You saw that thing, it's huge and it wants to kill me now. And yet here you are, very much alive. He reached into a pocket and pulled out a check. And very wealthy. I looked at the check and then back at him. He grinned. Might I suggest that you not spend too much and raise suspicions? So, you would pay me this much for each one of these things that I find? He nodded. And you would help me catch it? He nodded again. Well, looks like you just bought yourself a park ranger. I said offering my hand. And he shook it. Pleasure doing business with you. He said and then turned and walked away. Temptation is a terrible thing. I was tempted to buy a brand new Ferrari and drive it to work just to shove it in the noses of those guys who made fun of me. But then I realized that success is the best revenge. If I can nab another creature or two, I could buy my own little island and retire. I'm thinking maybe Hawaii. My investigation into the bear trap took me to a place where I'd heard there's been some trouble lately with missing hikers. Not that I really care about the hikers. In this park, we should rename the trails for which cryptids hunt on it. That way, when these hikers ignore the warnings and blunder into the dens of these dangerous creatures, they'll only have themselves to blame. I'm thinking maybe I can make my job easier by buying the land that has the cryptid that I'm looking for and then clear cut all the trees so it has no place to hide. Now I know what you're thinking, it would just run away to another spot. Not the way that I would clear cut. Start with a hundred machines on the outside of the property and work our way into the center so it has nowhere to go. As I looked around the land and daydreamed, a hiker came running up to me. Please, you need to help me. She said, oh, what's the problem? I said, feeling less than interested. My husband and brother, they were attacked by an animal. She lowered her eyes. I don't really know what it was. It seemed unnatural. My ears perked up and I became laser focused on helping this poor woman. Don't worry, ma'am, I said. Show me where it happened and I'll take care of it. Oh, thank God. She said as we started down the trail. I was worried that you wouldn't believe me. Trust me, ma'am, I said. I want to find out what happened as much as you do. I just found out I have a brother that my parents keep locked in the attic.
Written by BooBoo87XX I had been living in that house since I was two years old, so the noises that I heard coming from the attic weren't strange to me. When I was little, my mom would tell me that fairies were living there to watch over us, and if I was really bad, they would come and take me, and I would have to live with them forever. I know that she was trying to frighten me, but I don't think she actually realized how much it did scare me. I used to have a reoccurring nightmare of some unseen force taking me out of bed and putting me in a burlap sack. I could feel every bump as they dragged me up those attic stairs. It felt so real. And then I would wake up in my bed and it would be morning. I was too terrified to get out of bed at night. But every now and then, I would hear footsteps and think that they were coming for me and sprint as fast as I could to my parents' room. One of my earliest memories was me diving into their bed after hearing something moving around up there in the middle of the night. It would make my dad check every inch of that house, especially the attic door before I would go back to bed. I was always afraid that he would forget to put the chains back on after feeding them. I used to hide under the covers with my mother's arms wrapped around me. She used to sing to me and I would usually be asleep by the time that he returned. She had such a soothing voice. I always believed that nothing could harm me as long as I was in her arms. She was so calm no matter what happened. I can't remember one time she raised her voice to me. Not even when I tried to wash her new car with paint thinners that I had found in the shed. My dad wasn't as calm as my mom, but he never shouted at me. He believed communication was the key to any good relationship. So whenever I got in trouble, he would sit me down and explain everything to me in a way that I could understand. I always respected him for that, and I suppose that it worked. I was polite and respectful. They never had any of the neighbors call to complain about me. I might have had one or two mishaps at school over the years, but I never got taken to the principal's office or anything like that. Plus, I had good grades, so I think they must have been happy with me. The town that I live in is small with less than a thousand people, but we're a very tight-knit community. Everybody knows everyone and we all look out for each other. It's one of the safest places in the country to raise a kid. My dad would always tell me that. The sheriff lives three houses up. My dad's best friend since childhood, Tony, lives across the street from us. My teacher lives on the next block. It doesn't make sense how my parents had managed to hide a child in the attic all these years without someone finding out. Our next door neighbor, Mrs. Henson, went on a date with a guy that she met on Facebook a few years back while her husband was at a bar. The whole town knew about it before she got out of the restaurant even though it happened two towns over. That's the thing about small towns. Everybody knows your business. So how did my parents get away with it for so long? Looking back, I probably should have noticed something was up. The constant scratching, the crying, the chain door. And then there was the feeding bucket. I guess when you're a kid, you just believe anything your parents tell you. If you can't trust them, who can you trust? 
By the time that I stopped believing in fairies, my parents had me convinced that raccoons were living up there, and my dad was treating them for rabies. I don't know how I believed them. It sounds so stupid now, but it worked. I never went near the attic. I did ask them once why they just didn't call an exterminator, and my mom told me that if they did, they would have to get put to sleep. She said that every creature should get a second chance, no matter how sick they are. I don't know if my dad felt the same. I would hear him pacing up and down the hallway upstairs every night before feeding time. My mom and I used to wait in the kitchen. The steps to the attic were directly over us, so I would often hear weird noises when he opened the door. My mom would try to hide it by putting on music. The weird thing about it is, they were some of my happiest memories. We would always be singing and dancing until my dad came back and called my mom into the other room. His eyes were always red and bloodshot. He told me that it was because of the attic insulation, but sometimes I would put my ear up to the door to listen in, and I was sure that I could hear him sobbing. I first started to get suspicious about a year ago, and it was my dad's birthday, and he had had a bit too much to drink and forgotten to lock the attic door. I only noticed when I got up to go to the toilet. I tried to warn him, but he was out cold on the couch. I didn't want to wake my mom, so I went back to bed. A while later, I was awoken by a weird noise, but I thought that it came from the attic, so I didn't think anything of it and tried to go back to sleep. Before I got a chance to close my eyes, I heard a thud. It sounded like it came from the end of my bed, so I got a fright and jumped up. Staring into the darkness, I could just about make out a shadowy figure, rocking over and back in the corner. The noise was coming from them banging their head on the wall as they swayed back and forth repeatedly. First, I thought that it was my dad. He was very drunk that night. He was a bit of a lightweight, so once we found him asleep in the bathtub wrapped in a towel, because he couldn't make it to his room. Dad, is that you? I whispered, but he didn't answer. Frustrated, I blurted out, Dad, for God's sake, will you answer me? Suddenly, the thuds started to become louder and closer together, and that's when I realized that it wasn't my dad. I could feel the blood rush into my head and my heart started jumping to the beat. Thud, 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 of his head hitting the wall. I wanted to shout out for help, but I was breathing so heavily that I thought I was going to faint. And then it just stopped. And the only sound that I could hear apart from my racing heart was the intense, shallow breathing coming from whoever was standing at the end of the bed. As I watched him slowly turn toward me, there was a moment where I thought that I was going to die. I couldn't feel my heart anymore and I'm fairly sure my life flashed before my eyes. I then heard him shout, Josh! Before laughing maniacally, I'll tell you this, I screamed louder than I ever have screamed in my life. I wouldn't be surprised if I woke the whole town. I don't really remember much after that, I may have passed out. I don't know how my parents kept doing this, but they were able to convince me that it was all a dream, and I believed them even when I found a head-shaped dent in my wall the next day. I guess they were my parents and I never expected them to lie to me. 
but the veil had been lifted, and I started to notice every little noise that came from the attic, and it scared the heck out of me. The following months were tough, and I hated going to bed, and by then, I was too old to run into the safety of my mother's arms. So I hid under the covers every night in case that thing came back. It took a long time, but eventually, I began to recover, and things started to go back to normal, if only for a short time. I don't know why my mom and dad kept this from me for so long. They must have known that I would have found out about it sooner or later. They probably thought that it would scare me, and they wanted to wait until I was a bit older. But they were wrong. Nothing could have scared me as much as it did that night. My dad had had a few too many again, and ended up falling asleep on the couch. And to be fair to him, he wasn't always like that. I guess keeping a secret that big took its toll on him. I didn't even notice the attic door was unlocked when I went to bed. I was probably too tired from staying up late the night before on the PlayStation. So by the time that my head hit the pillow, I was out cold. I don't know how long after it was, but something woke me. I heard, Josh, Josh, please wake up. I was after coming out of a deep sleep and I could barely keep my eyes open. So I thought that I was dreaming and I pulled the covers over my head. I then felt a hand on my shoulder. Josh, please, we're running out of time. When I turned around, I saw that shadowy figure standing over me again. I freaked out and screamed uncontrollably. Moments later, my dad rushed into my room and turned on the light. And that's when I saw its face and it terrified me. My dad put a sack over his head and had him dragged out of there in seconds. The only thing he said to me was, Did he touch you? But I was in shock and couldn't answer, so he locked me in my room. It was the next morning before he came back. By then, I had started to come around and I wanted answers. He didn't walk in right away like he usually would. Instead, he knocked. Josh, my dad said. I need you to answer this question truthfully. Can you do that? Dad, why am I locked in here? What's happening? I replied nervously. Josh, he shouted. That was the first time that I ever heard him talk to me like that. So I got frightened and I started to cry. Josh, just listen, he said at this time in a calmer tone. Everything will be okay, son. Just answer the question, please. I blurted out. No, daddy didn't touch me. Why did I do something wrong? No, son, you did good. He replied as he let out a sigh of relief and then he walked away. And I heard nothing from him for hours. When he came back, mom was with him. She had a burger and fries which she had left down on the bed beside me. I knew things were bad when she couldn't even look me in the eye. When I asked them what was wrong, they seemed to struggle to get the words out. They were usually very vocal so it was weird to see them like that. When they eventually started explaining what was going on, it shocked me to my core. They told me that I had a brother that they had kept locked in the attic all these years. I didn't know what to say, but it did explain what I saw that night and why that shadowy figure looked so much like me. They said that he was born with a dangerous condition and that they had to lock him in the attic to keep everybody safe. But they assured me that it was okay as long as I didn't have any contact with them. 
And when I asked them why, they didn't just take him to the hospital to get help. They told me that it wasn't that kind of sickness. I must have had a million questions to ask them, but I think it was too much to process at the time. So I just got angry with them and told them that I never wanted to talk to them again. I don't know if I could ever trust them after what they did. What else were they lying about? And what about my poor brother? They're monsters. How could they keep anybody locked away like that? Especially their own son. Would they do the same to me someday? What's worse? I know my brother is locked up there alone and scared. I really want to help him. But I'm worried they might be telling the truth and he is sick. Then I would only make things worse. With what's been happening the last few days, I started to believe that I was losing it. I didn't know what was real anymore. Before I found out that I had a brother, I had had the perfect life. A loving family, good friends, and zero stress. Now all I have is paranoia and loneliness. I wish that I could go back to that night and wake my dad or mom and make sure that the door was locked. That way, he would have never escaped and I would be living in my dream world, oblivious to the truth, but at least I'd be happy. Since I found out about him, that's all I've been able to think about. My birthday was coming up and my parents usually threw me a party. The thoughts of that really hit me. The cake, the presents, surrounded by all my family and friends. It seems so cruel now. Last year was one of the best that I had. I got everything that I wanted while he was up there in a cold, dark attic. The only company that he got was a brief visit from my dad, and that was only to feed him. I don't think I'll be able to celebrate anything like that ever again without thinking of him. I'll never forgive my parents for that. I don't care what's wrong with him. No one deserves a life like that, and I was going to do whatever I could to free him. I tried talking to my parents a few times after that night. I was hoping that they would give me some sort of logical explanation for what they did to him, but they denied everything and tried to make me believe that it was only a dream. They nearly had me fooled too, until one night I overheard them talking in their room. My mom had said something about his condition that it can't be controlled and that he could hurt a lot of people again if he got out. And then they started arguing about what to do with him. My mom wanted to keep him close, but my dad wanted to send him back to where, well, I don't know. Mom came storming out of the room before I could find out and caught me listening in. I tried to confront her and told her what I had heard. But she believes that I am that same little dumb kid that thought fairies lived in the attic. And told me some BS story, but I knew better. That was the last time I asked them any questions like that again. They would only lie to me anyways. If I were going to find out the truth, I would have to be smart. The only problem was they had become very suspicious of me, so I had to make them believe that I was on their side. I mean, it was easy. They are sociopaths. They thought they could fool me into believing anything that they said. All I had to do was play dumb and agree with whatever they told me. By day, I was their perfect little angel, always obedient like the trained monkey they had wanted me to be. But by night, while they were sleeping, I started to communicate with my brother by gently knocking on the ceiling. He may not have understood me, but at least he knew that I was there for him. 
and that was the only time that I felt normal. I was unable to sleep and when I did, I had horrible nightmares. I started to feel really lonely at night, so after a while I began speaking to him. I didn't care if they could hear me or not, I was just happy to have someone to talk to. I was sure that I was never going to get a reply until one night. He must have found a way to get into the air vents, because I began to hear him whispering. The first night, it only lasted for a few seconds, and it was kind of muffled, but I'm sure that he said, Mints in your food. Check their closet. I wasn't sure exactly what he meant, so the next day when my mom was cooking dinner and dad was at work, I checked to see if he was telling the truth. In the back of my mom's closet, I found a bottle with my name on the label. It was dated for the day after they had told me about my brother, and it was almost half empty. I couldn't believe it. They were actually drugging me, but it did explain all the weird things that I was seeing. I was sure they were putting it in my food, so after that, whenever they gave me something that they had prepared, I threw it out when they weren't looking. But they must have found another way because things only got worse. The horrible nightmares that I had, they started happening while I was awake. The first time that I had experienced it, I was in the bathroom washing my hands after having dinner at my friend's house. Suddenly, I heard giggling and little footsteps outside the door. I was sure that it was just Tony's little sister, so I said, In just a minute, I'm nearly done. And then everything went dark, and even though it was the middle of the day, I panicked and I ran for the door, but I tripped and fell. When I tried to get up, something grabbed my legs and then my arms, and I could feel myself getting dragged away. The next thing I knew, I was on the bathroom floor screaming like a little girl. Tony's parents were standing over me. It was so embarrassing. I really had freaked them out, so they rang my parents. I tried to convince them that a bug had scared me, but I don't think they believed me. They were acting weird for the rest of the night. When I went home that night, my brother started talking to me again. This time, his voice was clear, and I could understand him perfectly. He told me my parents drug him every day, and that's why he can only talk at night. He said they were part of a cult and they believed he was possessed. So as a baby, they wanted to sacrifice him. But my mom couldn't do it. So she faked his death instead. Unfortunately, she believed he still had a demon inside of him. And they locked him up ever since. I really didn't want to trust him, but what choice had I got? If he is right and I do nothing, I could be living up there with him for the rest of my life. I don't know what will happen if I'm wrong. But surely it can't be any worse than this. He asked me to steal the key from dad, but he always has it in his pocket. So I would have to sneak into the room in the middle of the night to find it. I begged him to let me go to the police instead. But they said that he wouldn't believe me without proof. The problem is, I'm a nervous wreck. When I was a child, I stole a cookie from the cookie jar before dinner. All through dinner, I was on the verge of a panic attack. In the end, I couldn't take the pressure anymore and I confessed everything. So the night when I was meant to steal the key, I chickened out at the last minute. I felt so guilty for being such a coward and to make it worse, I could hear him whispering things like, Please, Josh, help me before it's too late. Or, do you want to be locked up here with me because you will? I heard them talking about it. 
He went on like that for most of the night. I was too ashamed to reply and I tried to ignore him, but it was hard because I could hear the desperation in his voice. By morning, I'd had enough. I could not face another night like that. So while my parents were out, I spent the entire day searching for that key, or at least some proof that I had a brother to show the police. I didn't find the key, but I did find something in a photo album. My mom loved that kind of thing. She was very organized. She had documented every step of my life since I was about three or four. But weirdly, there was nothing before that. It was like I didn't exist. And oh yeah, there was one more thing. I found a burlap sack shoved in behind the fridge with a little bottle of clear liquid and a hypodermic needle inside. That was the last straw. I was sure everything my brother told me was the truth and my parents were planning to lock me up. I couldn't wait until that night to break them out. So I got a claw hammer from the shed and I tried to break the locks. The first one was easy, it only took a few hard strikes. But the other two were strong and they wouldn't budge. I gave up when I whacked my finger off the corner of the door and went looking for something bigger. Unfortunately, when I got to the bottom of the stairs, my mom walked in and screamed when she saw me. And then my dad started chasing me. Luckily, I got out the back door before he caught me. I hid in the forest behind my house for hours trying to figure out what to do before I finally made the decision to go to the police, but by then it was nearly nightfall. The whole way there I went over everything in my head to make sure that I got my story straight, but by the time that I actually got there, I had become so nervous that I was shaking. I walked in and saw the sheriff standing up behind the desk, talking to a woman with his back to me. I was about to speak, but the woman screamed. It was only then that I realized. All my clothes were covered in blood from the cut that I got from banging my hand off the door. But the looks on their faces, I would say, they thought that I was after murdering someone. I tried to speak again, but I stuttered. In that moment, I was sure they were going to pull out their guns and order me to get on the floor or something like that. But instead, the sheriff calmly said, Son, are you hurt? It was at that moment that it all hit me, and I broke down crying. I told him everything, and I mean everything. I even told him about the reoccurring dream I had as a kid. He must have thought that I was crazy. I was waiting for him to throw me into a cell, but he didn't. He just said, Everything's okay, son, come with me. And he took me to the car. I started to freak out when he stopped outside my house. So he told me to wait there until he came back, and to my relief, because I really didn't want to go inside. I have no idea how long he was in there, but it seemed like hours. I was going over all kinds of scenarios in my head, from my parents chopping up the sheriff and hiding his body, to him coming out with a burlap sack and dragging me to the attic himself. I was nervous, but slightly relieved when I saw the sheriff walking towards me. When he asked me to come with him, I nearly crapped myself. Terrified, I blurted out, Please don't make me go in there. They'll lock me in the attic with my brother. Molly held my hand and took me inside. Oh, relax, son, there's nothing to be afraid of. That's all he said to me as he took me upstairs. At the attic door, I panicked and tried to run, but ended up running into my dad's arms. At that point, I was sure that it was all one big conspiracy and I was going to be locked up there forever. 
so I kicked and screamed the whole way like a toddler. When I got to the top, I realized that there was nothing up there apart from a few old boxes and some Christmas decorations. It didn't make any sense. I was lost for words. I really thought that there would still be some sign of them up there, but there was nothing. When I asked why they always kept the attic door locked, my dad said it was because the floors were only partly finished, and he was afraid that I would fall through the ceiling and get hurt. As my mom walked me to my room, I heard my dad tell the sheriff that I had stopped taking my meds. The truth is, I was beginning to believe him, and thought that it was all in my imagination, until my mom whispered in my ear, Don't give in. Fight like I did. As she put me to bed. Ever since I went to the sheriff, my parents have been acting really weird, which is saying a lot for them, because they are literally crazy at the best of times. They won't let me go anywhere unless one of them is with me. Even at home, they're around me all the time. I can't even go to the bathroom without one of them questioning me. And I'm pretty sure they have a camera in my room because every single time I put one foot outside of it, somebody is standing there. And they treat me like a kindergartner now, helping me with these smallest of tasks like tying my shoes or cutting my food into small pieces. And that's not all. They give me praise for every little thing. My dad keeps calling me a champ. I'm not even sure why. He never did that when I was little. It's embarrassing, especially when he does it in public. I was in the store one day buying a soda when the guy behind the counter accidentally had knocked it over and it fell. But I caught it before it hit the floor. My dad shouted, Well done, champ, and started clapping. And there was a drunk guy standing behind him and he joined in and started cheering. On the way out, I noticed a group of girls from my school were looking at me smirking. I was so embarrassed. And to make it worse, I really liked this one girl named Tracy. She probably thinks that I'm an idiot now. I don't know why they're messing with me like that, but I'm guessing it was just another one of their mind games. They're probably trying to forget about my brother and I hope to do the same. I won't let them. I talk about him every chance that I get. But they keep changing the subject and try to bribe me with whatever I want. I'm not ashamed of it. I take full advantage. It's like this. If I'm going to be locked away from the rest of the world... I might as well make the most of it while I can. They bought me a brand new PlayStation with all the trimmings, a VR headset, games, everything that I could ever ask for. I'm sick of playing their little games and acting like one big happy family. They thought they could separate us by hiding them away where I couldn't find them. It didn't work because one night I woke up to the sound of my brother's voice in my ear. Instantly I jumped up and turned on the light, but I couldn't see him anywhere. I was on my way back to bed when I heard, Josh. I thought that he was back in the attic, so I stood in the bed and whispered, I'm sorry for calling the cops. I should have listened to you. I promise that I'll break you out of there this time. It's okay, he replied. Every day I feel myself getting stronger and stronger, thanks to you and they know it. That's why they're trying to keep us apart. I nearly cried. I was so happy to be able to talk to him again. I thought that he was dead. He continued. One way or another, I'll get out of here, and when I do, they will pay. Everyone will pay. We spoke a lot after that, and I realized that we had a lot in common. We both loved to read and liked many of the same books. 
I imagined he hadn't had much else to do up there, and my parents probably gave him the books when I was done with them. We even kept a journal, in fact, so did our entire family. My mom gave me a habit of writing in mine before bed every night as far back as I can remember. She even made my dad keep one. I write everything in mine, even my darkest thoughts. One of my biggest fears is my parents finding it. I know they would never understand. I think our connection is getting stronger. He started showing me things in my head, like him getting dragged out of bed in the middle of the night and brought to the attic. Maybe that's why I kept having that reoccurring nightmare as a child. He was trying to ask me for help. Man, I feel so bad now, but I thought it was only a dream. What my dad did to him up there is wrong. I hated my parents, especially my dad. I wanted to know everything, but my brother said that I wasn't ready yet. I had so many visions, and some were so horrible that I can't bear thinking how could anyone hurt people like that. Even though every vision was different, and I didn't recognize anyone, they all had one thing in common. The eyes that I was seeing through were pure evil. I could feel the hate and anger pumping through its veins. Then again, maybe it was all a dream. I don't know anymore. But whatever they were, they started to take over my life. And I sometimes forgot what was real. And for a moment, it was like I was a different person. Well, person is the wrong word to describe it. My brother said that it was hallucinations brought on by the drugs that they gave me. He said that they will all stop once we get rid of my parents. But I'm not so sure that he's telling the truth. I can hear my brother's voice all the time now, and not just in my room. I think he's in my head. I don't mind at least, I'm not alone with them anymore. I have someone on my side. I hated being around my parents. All I wanted to do was be alone in my room, but they wouldn't let me, and they forced me to go on their family days out. It was torture. I always had to be on my toes and act like everything was okay, but it wasn't. All I could think about was freeing my brother. He made sure of that, with this constant whispering inside my head. One day, it got too much for me. We had just come home from a day at the water park, and instead of letting me go to my room like I wanted, my dad forced me to have one of his game nights. I couldn't take one more minute of Monopoly with the monsters. So, when it was my turn to roll the dice, I must have lost it and I blacked out. I didn't think that I did anything wrong because I was still sitting there in that same spot with the dice in my hand. But when I looked around, everything in our sitting room was broken. The TV, the table, even our family photos. My parents were pushed up against the wall and they looked terrified. It was so weird to see my dad like that. He was shaking and everything. I thought that he was going to kill me, but he didn't budge from that wall. Instead, my mom walked over to me, smiled and grabbed my hand and took me to my room. When I got there, my mom gave me a big hug and whispered in my ear, Please, just ignore him and try to be positive. It's the only way to stop him and I can't lose you again. Before walking away, sobbing to herself. After that, they barely let me out of my room and when they did, it was only for a short time. I think it was because of my dad, he couldn't look me in the eye anymore. I think he somehow blamed my mom too and I could hear them arguing all the time. I was sure that it would only be a matter of time before he left, but my brother wasn't happy about that. He didn't want him to leave before he got his revenge. I don't think he felt the same about mom. He often shared happy memories of her. Unlike him, I hated both of them. 
If she had cared so much, she could have done something to stop him any time she wanted to, but she didn't. Soon the visions became more frequent and he showed me the full extent of what my dad did. When my dad took him to the attic, he used to tie him to a chair and wouldn't even take him out of the sack. When my brother felt searing pain in his left arm, everything became blurry and the music started. It was so surreal. It kind of sounded like something I heard as a child on some kids shows that I can't remember. Whenever he heard dad's voice repeating, You are Josh, you are happy, all your bad thoughts are gone. Things became hazy and the next thing he knew, he is in his bed and it's the next morning. I thought that it was a dream at first until one day the bat got caught on a nail as dad carried him up the steps to the attic. When my brother had realized what was happening, he managed to fight dad off and escape out the door, somehow breaking dad's arm in the process. But when he saw mom standing at the bottom of the stairs crying, he froze for a second. And then dad grabbed him and held him down while mom had injected him. My parents told me they had no choice but to keep him up there until he stopped hurting people, which is sick. It was dad's own fault that he got hurt that night. My brother was only defending himself. Besides, how could a child that young be capable of hurting anyone? I suppose whatever cult they were part of brainwashed them, and they tried to do the same thing to my brother. I fear soon that I'll be next. After he knew what they were up to, the treatment as they called it became very traumatic for him so he started to block it out by thinking of his happy place, which was him cuddled in bed with mom or dancing around the kitchen with her. Eventually he got lost and has been trapped in darkness ever since, waiting for his chance to escape. I'm so happy he made contact with me that night or I would have never known that he existed. I still have no idea how he'll get out of there, but he assures me that it won't be long. I can't wait. I always feel like there was something missing in my life and now I know why. I wish I could make my parents pay right now for taking him away from me, but I haven't gotten the courage to do it on my own. Lately I feel like I'm losing my mind. One minute I could be sitting on my bed playing the PS, the next minute I could be standing in the kitchen talking to my parents. The weird thing is they look so happy laughing and joking with me like there's nothing wrong. When I checked the time, hours had passed. I don't understand how I could be so friendly with them. I can't face looking at them usually. I don't know what I would do without my brother. He's the only one that I can depend on. He always knows exactly what to say to calm me down when I freak out, which is a lot lately since I started sleepwalking. At first, I would wake up in the backyard covered in dirt. But now I started waking up in my parents' room, standing over my mom. I'm so scared. I really hope that my brother comes to save me. He promised that he would. I don't know how much longer I can hold on. Thanks very much to HelloFresh for sponsoring this week's episode. Guys, it's time once again to talk about the greatness that is HelloFresh. I'll never get tired of mentioning how awesome this meal kit is. HelloFresh sends fresh quality produce straight from the farm to your door. And with their incredible collection of meals and recipes, you're guaranteed to find a delicious new concoction that you'll absolutely love. Earlier this week, I whipped up some beef and mushroom ranch burgers with bacon, and I was amazed at how juicy and flavorful they were. 
HelloFresh always sends the highest quality ingredients and you can really taste the difference. And not only that, but you can save both time and money by making the switch. No more hassle with the grocery store searching for the exact things that you want. Now they'll arrive perfectly pre-portioned at your doorstep. Need another reason to stay in for dinner? HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than dining at a restaurant and is even cheaper than grocery shopping. That's money back in your pocket. What's even better is Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh. And with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands and now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. Thanks again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I've been stuck in the year 2005 for over a decade. Written by Snickering Haystack. For over a decade, I've been reliving the year 2005. Each year, a rotation as I call the passing of every 365 days. The cycle begins anew. Same routines, same troubles in the news, same people around me. The rotations don't begin on January 1st like you might be expecting, but instead on Christmas Day just before midnight. That was the night that I performed the ritual for the creature, Mr. Morgenstern. For a decade or more, I've kept up my end of the bargain with Mr. Morgenstern, but for some reason this last rotation, this last Christmas... Something went wrong. If you haven't guessed already, it was my wish that this limbo of 2005 repeat itself, for reasons that I'll get into later. I will say now that I had no choice. I had to do it. It was the best thing for everyone. Don't mistake this for a confession. I'm not confessing. I am not seeking forgiveness for what I've done, nor am I repenting. I am beseeching your understanding whoever you are listening to this, and perhaps with what's transpired, these posts are my last gasp at immortality. Friday, December 23rd. I meet my husband Josh at the first cup coffee shop off Mavis, like I do every December 23rd. Like every rotation before, he's sitting by the window wearing his crisp white button-down with the ebony cufflinks that I bought him for his 38th birthday. He's also wearing his cornflower blue necktie, his shark skin suit jacket draped along the shoulders of his chair. His winter coat is crumpled into an unsightly black mass on the seat next to him. There's a tiny espresso cup, the china unstained, glistening on the table. At 40 years old, he's still as handsome as the dashing young defense attorney that I fell in love with. Square jaw, high cheekbones, a fine Roman nose, and the most irresistible emerald eyes. His hairline is receded, the flesh of his temples now exposed, forming a kind of widow's peak, but I don't mind. I've tried to find his balding pattern, uncomely despite him, but I've never found his appearance any less appealing over the years. He looks up at me, regarding me with a put-on air of remorse. It worked the first time and brought me to my knees, in fact. 
This time, I'd rather he just drop the pretense and get it over with. I know what I am to him this day. One more drawn-out inconvenience on an already busy afternoon. Thank you for coming, he says, referring to the message that he left on the answering machine two hours ago. After seven rotations, I have the thing memorized, down to the fillers and slight stammer on his pronunciation of the address. I didn't bother listening to it this day. I arrive, knowing the address by rote. Hi, honey. I say to him, mustering all the housewifely sticky sweetness that I can muster. I wave off the approaching server, declining to order. Don't you need to get back to work? I ask, knowing the answer but needing to feed in the line for the confession to follow. I hope you're not here to tell me that the partners are expecting you to work on Christmas again. You know how much the children have been looking forward to seeing you for the holidays. No, Lorraine, that's not what I came here to tell you. Even after all this time, all the repetition, his words in that deadpan delivery still hit me like a sledgehammer to the gut. He didn't always call me by my name like that either, opting during our feverish courtship to call me low. But in these last 11 months, he'd address me formally by Lorraine. Okay, I breathe. I know what's coming next. I know how much it's going to hurt. The anticipation helps me regain my composure. With little effort, I turn to stone. My husband continues. I'm sure it won't come to a surprise that things have not been going well lately. What do you mean? I bleed, feigning ignorance. You mean at work? No, with us. Things have not been going well with us, Lorraine. When I had first heard this, I was gobsmacked. I genuinely believed that this year had been the happiest time we had been since getting married. For the first few rotations, I thought that he was lying, trying to make himself feel less guilty about what he was asking of me. But during these last couple rotations, I've started noticing what he meant. What? I asked, trying to sound overwhelmed. What are you talking about? The fights, the nagging, the long days at work. The almost nightly binge drinking, the lack of sex. His frail mask of remorse had dissipated, his eyes souring with agitation and patience. Oh, Lorraine, he huffs. There's no easy way of saying this. He stops, as though giving me a chance to absorb and anticipate what's next. Truth is, I'm already bored. I'm leaving. You're leaving. I speak as though stating a fact. I'm leaving you. I want a divorce. I feel my heart lurch in my chest. Divorce, what an ugly word. What a horribly sterile term to cover so much confusion and anguish. So much destruction. I try to put on the waterworks, not for sympathy, just to feel human. But after ten or more consecutive walkthroughs, I honestly can't be bothered. My mind wanders to the Daniel Steele paperback that I wish I had brought with me. You want a divorce? I exhale, my voice dead. He stares at me for a beat before his eyes flutter and his face scrunches with faint bemusement. This isn't the reaction that he had expected. It isn't the hysterical one that he got ten rotations ago. Yeah, he says carefully. That's right. I anticipate his next line of dialogue. After hearing it so many times, I've realized that he's rehearsed what to say. For a fleeting second, I amused myself by imagining him practicing in one of the mirrors in the bathrooms at work. 
ducking every time he hears someone coming in to use the can. I know that Mr. Morgenstern wouldn't approve, but I can't help myself from what happens next. Look, he continues, plowing forward. I love... You and the kids, I interrupt, reciting his lines back to him. It's just that I don't feel like living together is our best option anymore. Josh tilts his head, clearly confused. That's right, he utters, sounding almost like he's asking a question. Well, I sigh half-heartedly returning to the script. Would you consider seeing a marriage counselor, for Tobias and Jennifer's sake? Look, he snaps like he always does, my lips moving in sync with his. I've met someone, someone, who I'm serious about, someone who makes me feel alive again, someone I want to spend the rest of my life with. I roll my eyes and wiggle my fingers in the air as I mimic him. I then signal the server. I've decided that I do need a coffee after all. That's freaky, he says, his brow knitted, his eyelashes, butterfly wings. I just got deja vu. How, how did you know I was going to say all that? Ignoring him, I order a large dark roast to go. Lorraine, he says in a whisper, have we had this conversation before? I look deep into his eyes, seeing the genuine confusion on his face. There is the slightest glimmer of fear, or mortification, unable to resist, the sadistic pull too strong. I take it a step further. Is it that cute brunette that you've got? That receptionist just out of high school? The one with the nice rack and the mile-long legs? I notice his fingers, which are air-typing like they always do when he gets nervous. The cufflings catch my eye again. My neck bristles. I bet he doesn't even remember it was I who had gifted them to him. Just like he doesn't remember his precious study at her house. His haddled man cave all but boarded up now. His desk, bowling trophies, and football memorabilia collecting dust. I had always kept it clean but let it rot these past three rotations. Are we about down here? I ask, unable to hold my disgust. Wait a minute, Josh snaps, almost lunging across the table. My coffee arrives in a paper cup and I begin slipping on my coat. Wait a minute, Low. Have you been spying on me? I let out a haughty little laugh. Oh, don't flatter yourself, Joshua. You're not that hard to read. D did you hire a PI or something? It's hard not to hate my husband at this moment. To not remind him like I had over ten years ago. Through my tears that I quit my job despite being on the shortlist for assistant to prosecutor, quitting so there would be no conflict with him and his law practice. So he wouldn't feel emasculated since for a while, I was making more money than he was, but he would inevitably fire back with the truth. I quit my job because I always wanted a family. Before turning to leave, I remember to say the last part of the script. Listen Joshua, please come for the weekend at least. I think Tobias and Jennifer deserve one last Christmas with their family, unperturbed by the harshness of real life. And please don't mention this, not until after the holidays. Typically, his response is a begrudging acceptance, a reluctant acquiescence. This time, he stares up wallowed at me, as if not hearing or understanding. After a moment, he confirms that he understands with a slow, pendulous nod. I exit the little coffee shop. 
Once inside my SUV, I rummage in my plush winter coat for my keys, finding my cell phone instead. It's lit, indicating a missed call or a message. I flip it open, seeing a voice message from Simcoe Elementary, Tobias and Jennifer School. I listen to it, hearing a tinny voice requesting that I come to pick up my daughter immediately. This is new. Having turned the engine over, I peel out of the strip mall parking lot and ease onto Mavis before driving west on Winston Churchill. I arrive at Simcoe around 1, just two hours before the students are to be dismissed for the break. Inside it's boiling, the heat cranked up to stave off the Canadian element hauling outside. The last time that I was here was for a painful parent-teacher interview. Don't get the wrong idea, my kids are smart and their grades are fine and they are no more poorly behaved than the other juveniles their age. In fact, they're more mature and better behaved than most. I wouldn't hesitate to even call them brilliant. It's just always a raw experience, hearing these revelations about my kids, how they're changing in ways that I haven't been privy to, how they're growing up, growing away from me. I sign in at the reception desk, get my visitor's sticker, and then proceed to the adjacent hallway. My daughter Jennifer is sitting in a metal armchair, facing the open door of the principal's office. The principal, Mrs. Park, a pretty stout Asian woman, in a muted pantsuit is standing over her. Mrs. Park and I meet eyes wordlessly. I bend down and reach for my daughter's impish face. It's a pretty face, somewhat boyish, with red freckles and her father's brilliant green eyes. Besides the eyes and her close haircut, she looks just like I did at her age. Her forehead is damp and her short chestnut mop matted as though she had been sweating. I ask her quietly if she's alright. She looks up at me with a cold, emotionless stare. Thank you for coming, Mrs. Claiborne, says Mrs. Park. I take a moment to push a damp errant strand behind my daughter's ear before acknowledging the principal. What happened? I asked. Perhaps we should discuss this in my office, she replies guardedly, requesting a private conversation out of my daughter's earshot. I don't see why not. I follow her into the office and she shuts the door behind me. Mrs. Park's office is different from the rest of the school, including the narrow hallway in which my daughter is waiting. The walls aren't festooned with colorful paper cutouts of cartoon animals or balloon letters and fractions. No framed motivational posters either. Besides a six-foot-tall bookcase and a shabby black desk, Mrs. Park's office is as drab and empty as my husband's study, complete with a few bowling trophies. Something happened with my daughter, I ask, easing myself into a chair. Eyes downcast, Mrs. Park nods and sits behind the pine desk. Yes, as you may know, we tend to perform a biannual cleanup of the school, one before winter break and again before the summer holiday. This includes cleaning out the lockers of the grade 7s and the grade 8s, like your daughter Jennifer. To be perfectly honest, this is our school's way of having a sweep of all the lockers, to inspect them all at once. Yes? Her lips purse into a thin line. She then bends sideways, reaching below the desk. She places the following items before me. A roll of duct tape, a pair of black leather gloves, a pair of MMA-style protective gloves, a coil of hemp rope, a book on wilderness survival, 
a book on self-defense, and various knives and blades, some of which looked to be home-fashioned. These were all found inside Jennifer's locker this morning. A wave of relief washes over me, so that's where she's hidden in this rotation. She tried to hide them by opening and closing her locker very quickly, telling us that she had already cleared it out. My god, I gasp, putting on the act. It has to seem like this is news to me. We've had our school counselor and psychologist speak with Jennifer. It's strange, but she seems to be under the impression that she's trapped dumb. Something about being trapped in a fake reality. Like the Matrix movies, she says. Knitting my brow, I squint hard at the principal. I'm not following. I lie, I know exactly what she means. Mrs. Park clears her throat. Um, she seems to believe that this world around her is fake and that she and her brother are the only real people. And that they are under threat by something. She couldn't really elaborate. But she did say that she believes that you are not her real mother. That she's already lived through this year, this school year, several times. And that her uncle specifically is dead. And that an imposter has been put in his place. That everybody's pretending he isn't dead even though he is. I swallowed hard. Jennifer thinks I'm not a real mother. Sitting stationary before the principal's desk, I let this sink in. Of course, I don't really have to. Part of the arrangement was Mr. Morgenstern was that only the four of us. Tobias, Jennifer, Joshua, and I would truly be stuck in 2005. Everyone else would be a holographic projection, since they were made only out of our memories and the manipulations of Mr. Morgenstern. As you would expect, this meant there were sometimes glitches in our reality, especially if that person had died in real life. I was told by Mr. Morgenstern that Joshua's brother, Jen's Uncle Freddy, had passed sometime in 2010, and thus the glitches became more prominent in that particular holograph. Even Mrs. Park, this woman sitting across from me, is just a hologram reacting to the disturbance my daughter has made in our little wonderland. Still, these holographs will act logically, including challenging me when reason dictates. May I ask? I begin slowly, careful not to overplay my hand. Do you have anything else of Jennifer's here? Well, yes, we have her school bag. We didn't find anything troubling inside. Well, may I see it? She tilts back down and retrieves my daughter's Hogwarts knapsack. I unzip the bag and pull out a thick black binder. Likewise, zippered shut. It doesn't take me long, and I've seen them before. Hmm, oh, there they are, I announce, finding a cluster of single-sheet papers stuffed at the very back of the binder. I pluck them out and lay them neatly on the principal's desk so that she can see. Her mouth drops open like a hatch. A good grief, she whispers. Before her are half-dozen penciled illustrations all by my daughter of grotesque, malformed faces, and they all seem to follow the same pattern. Most of the faces look half-human like the other half is distorted into dark, grisly shapes and textures. Fangs, a leathery skin, scales, tumors, horns, dead eyes. The eyes in particular are troubling. They have no sclera but are spiraled into oblivion. A single pinprick of white signifying the pupil. My daughter is quite the talented artist, though one with a grim, torturous muse. And worse, she's always been an especially precocious child.
Having read Harry Potter, The Hobbits, and the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy before reaching her 11th birthday, I, Mrs. Park stammers, looking down at the pictures, I've never seen these before. I've seen them a hundred times, I state flatly. These are her impressions of what she sees around her. This one in the middle I recognize as her Uncle Freddy, the one that she told you's dead. Really? She's drawn that same ghastly visage before at home. On our walls, in fact, written the words of my uncle next to it. Mrs. Park, her mouth is still agape, looks up at me and says nothing. I blink long and then exhale. We believe Jennifer may be suffering from schizophrenia. Given her age and these hallucinations, it seems likely. We've started visiting a child psychiatrist. She hasn't come to a conclusion yet but she tells us that it doesn't look good. Oh dear. Mrs. Park puts a soft flipper to her mouth. I wait for her to compose herself so she can tell me what's next. I see, she says finally, gathering up the papers and jogging them against the desk. I'm very sorry to hear that. But, she looks up at me, my frankness catching her off guard. But I'm afraid that Jennifer will have to be suspended for two weeks seeing as though she brought a weapon or weapons to school. Two weeks following the winter holiday, I ask, indifferent for obvious reasons. That's correct. Fine, I'll take her home now, if you don't mind since I'm here. I'd like to bring my son Tobias home early as well. He's in sixth grade. I'm hoping that won't be too much trouble since it's the last day before break. No trouble at all, says Mrs. Park. She pulls open a squeaky desk drawer and produces a powder blue Bristol card. I'll have our receptionist call this homeroom teacher. We'll tell her that he's dismissed. I'm sure any homework or take-home notices for the break have already been provided to him. She begins scrawling something on the card. I'm sure, listen, do you have a juice box or something, something that I can give my daughter to calm her down? A minute later, I'm sitting next to Jennifer, watching her sip fruit punch through a straw. I try cooing to her, playing with her hair, assuring her that everything's alright. Instead, she jerks her head out of reach and doesn't say a word. Two hours later, and the three of us are at home. Tobias and Jennifer are seated sedatedly on the living room couch, killing a thousand monsters on the PS2. Tobias, still an energetic, happy-go-lucky boy, is into the game exclaiming and shouting sporadically with each killer hit to his video-assimilated life. Conversely, Jennifer stares dull-eyed at the screen, her thumbs rotating the analogs as though her hands belong to someone else. I don't like the game they're playing, but it's still better than the World War II shooter that Tobias loves, a call of honor or something. I can't stand it with the gray images of historic warfare, not to mention the blare of gunfire and someone shouting, Good comrade, good, every five seconds. On the few occasions that he's home, Joshua especially loses his temper at Tobias, her playing with the volume too loud. I've always wished that Joshua wasn't so harsh with his son, Tobias being a spitting be a gangling image of his father. Still, a few hours from dinner and Josh's hopeful arrival, I sink deep into the kitchen hiding behind the inane sounds of my soap opera trilling from the mini-TV. I have a pot of pasta on the stove. The pasta is something quick for dinner. I still need to prepare the mashed potato casserole and stuffing for the big day. 
Once I'm sure that no one's listening, I take out my phone and dial Mr. Morgenstern's office. Morgenstern Legion and Associates, blares the creature. His put on a smarmy voice, plowing through their company slogan, telegraphing it through the receiver. We sell dreams by the skyfall. It's me. Oh, hello, Mrs. Claiborne, he says, his voice glib and patronizing. Our Josh and the kids. Pretty crap, actually. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Joshua's still trying to leave me. Well, Mrs. Claiborne, I can only hypnotize Joshua into accepting this faux reality. It's your job to bewitch him into loving you. I'm sure a woman of your impeccable charm can handle that. That's not all. My daughter just got suspended from school. I thought they'd go on holiday soon. Well, they're on holiday now. So what's the problem then? They found a knife and rope and all kinds of paranoid crazy stuff in her locker. Huh, so she hid it all at the school this time. Jesus Christ, Morgan Stern. The deal was that they wouldn't know that we were repeating the year. That things would be like they always were. Listen, Lorraine, baby, I told you over ten rotations ago. This reality has hypnotic effects on those inside it, even you. But they're not put under amnesia. In the end, the Marks have to believe that the world is as they see it and as they're told it is. There's no guarantee that some won't bog. It's up to you to keep up the facade. But what about my daughter, my sweet precious Jennifer? She's gone from that sweet, sweet little girl to a paranoid nut job. She thinks that I'm not even a real mother. Look, what can I say? Just spend some mother-daughter time together and give her some parental advice. I don't know. It's those glitches, especially the ones that occur when our Uncle Freddy is around. That holograph keeps morphing and what we see beyond it scares the daylights out of everybody. Look, okay, okay, relax. I'll see what I can do next rotation. Just make sure that you go through the ritual the night after tomorrow. Just don't blow your stack like this in anyone's earshot. We wouldn't want the facade to break down any more than it has. Oh, and one more thing. You haven't had any strangers come talk to you lately, have you? Strangers, what do you mean? You know, strangers, people you don't know. People who maybe don't seem like the typical holographs. No, no one like that. Why? Oh, good, good. Just keep it that way, all right. Go through with the ritual on Sunday and don't talk to anybody who shouldn't be there. Lots of luck. Saturday, December 24th. I know now that I never should have let them in. I knew at the time that I didn't have to. My eager just gets away from me sometimes, I suppose. After all, what do I have to hide? Jennifer and Tobias are tobogganing at the hill near our house. My husband Joshua is God knows where. When I hear the front doorbell ring, I'm busy vacuuming getting the house ready for Christmas dinner when I hear it. At first, I assume that it's a salesman, or maybe a Jehovah's Witness. Regardless, I put the vacuum aside and I go to answer it. On my front step, standing on the welcome mat, is a tall, handsome man. He looks at me with naive, almost childlike eyes. His womanish, blonde hair cascades down both shoulders from under his toque, giving him an angelic yet immature air. He's wearing a heavy winter jacket and boots, but I can see that he's wearing some sort of uniform underneath. I then hear a voice that isn't his. Hello, Mrs. Claiborne. I look at the man with the blonde locks closely. He hasn't even moved. Searchingly, I crane my neck into a near panoramic sweep of the cul-de-sac. 
trying to find the source. Our home rests at the back of a horseshoe-shaped line of other houses with square lawns, driveways, and picket fences. Mrs. Claiborne, the voice calls a second time. I step out into the welcome mat so that I have a view all the way down to the footpath, which ends where my front steps begin. There I see a stocky, red-haired woman sitting in a wheelchair, wearing clothing similar to the blonde man beside me. She has what looks to be a thick black binder on her lap. Part of my drive is an industrial van painted burgundy. Good morning, Mrs. Claiborne, she says, smiling with practiced sincerity. My name is Christine and the man on your front step there is Nicholas. If possible, we'd like to come inside. What's this about? I ask, not too rudely. Well, if you don't mind, Mrs. Claiborne, it's very cold out here and snowing. I was hoping you and Nicholas could help carry me into the house. I don't have the use of my legs, you see. This takes me slightly aback. The woman had not said these things in a chastising or self-pitying way, though a bit cloying. She strikes me as very professional and empathetic, and I feel a wash of shame for not immediately offering to help this wheelchair-bound creature. That's fine, I say, trying to match your sincerity and affableness. But what is this in regard to? Well, your daughter, says the woman, her voice carrying over the moan of the wind. Jennifer. Uh, Children's Aid Society, of course. Probably here because of the principal, concerned over what she found in Jen's locker. Sighing, my shoulders slumped and I nod my head resigned to this predictable indignity and invasion of my home. Again, I know I could have declined, that I could have made them give me whatever notice they had for me to sign out there in the cold, or I could have just refused them outright and told them to get scoffed. But in that moment, the wheelchair-bound woman moves me with her sincerity and rather pitiful condition. Also, I figured it would be better to let them in and get it over with. After all, what do I have to hide? I have insulted my steps in the last few days. I called down to her, feeling no cause to address the six-foot-two mute standing to my right. I'll open up the garage door, it's dry in there, and your friend and I can lift you in through the laundry room. Would that be alright? I can see then her beaming smile through her scarf and ensnaring her red hair. That sounds fine, Mrs. Claiborne. It takes a moment navigating her through the garage, around the SUV and the kids' scattered toys, though she is surprisingly light to carry up the steps and into our cramped little laundry room. Without any more help needed for me, the tall mute wheels Christine into the front hall and from there the dining room, attached to the kitchen. Besides cleaning, I've been preparing the mashed potato casserole for tomorrow. I still have to drive to Longo's later to pick up our turkey, special ordered. Not seeing a reason not to, I brew them each a cup of tea and one for me as well. Thank you so very much, says Christine, holding the steaming mug in both hands, her fingers red from the cold. Her attendant, Nicholas, doesn't touch his cup, letting it cool on the kitchen table as if sending a freeze ray with his eyes. I sit down, ready to listen. The woman places her thick binder on the table and then unzips it, 
She tosses aside a few pages before coming to a report. Gritting my teeth, I wait to hear about Jennifer's behavior and these suspicions of maltreatment or neglect. So, we're here regarding an incident involving your daughter, Mrs. Claiborne. She begins, innocent enough. Yes? We were informed that the following items were found in your daughter's locker at school. One roll of duct tape, two pairs of combat-style gloves, 15 feet of hemp rope about an inch in diameter, two books related to self-defense, and seven knives and blades, three of which looked to be self-made. There was only one book on self-defense, I corrected her. The other was on wilderness survival. Oh, thank you, I'll make that correction for the file. I note immediately that neither she nor her mute Nicholas are writing any of this down. Their eyes just bore into me while their hands rest motionless. And how has Tobias been adjusting? She then asks. I screw up my eyes at her. Adjusting to what? While adjusting to the current condition of the home. About some of the changes that have occurred with you and your husband. Digesting this, I stare back at her and then scan her and Nicholas's face. Okay, who the heck are you? Their benign expressions twist into four scowls. They look at each other with a rehearsed air of puzzlement. I'm sorry, Mrs. Claiborne. Christine asks, keeping up the candied enthusiasm. I thought you were CPS, but that's obviously not the case. What do you mean, says Christine, shaking her head with too much force. Of course, we're from Children's Aid Society. If you were CPS investigators or social workers, you would have immediately asked to speak with Jennifer, or at least asked where she was. The mock confusion on her face wilts, leaving only blank recognition. She's not contrite but ready to get serious. There's also no way you would have any idea about me and my husband. I carry on. There's never been an incident related to us reported before, and trust me, I would know if someone was going to make an allegation about us and our relationship. So who the heck are you two? When Christine speaks again, her face is etched in stone, her voice backed with steel. Do you really think the arrangement you made with Morganstern is fair, Lorraine? It's now my turn to play dumb. What? I ask. Scrunching on my nose for a fact, wobbling my head from side to side. Do you really think it's fair to Jennifer and Tobias, your children or your husband Joshua for that matter? And are you even happy here, in this contrived limbo, or purgatory, that you willfully confined yourself to? I don't know what you're talking about. I lie. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Slumping back in my wicker chair... I send darts their way with my eyes. If you understood my reasoning, you wouldn't be asking if it was fair. And what is your reasoning? I scoff. Oh, you wouldn't get it. Try me. I don't respond. What's the point? She's only trying to bait me. I look down on my chai tea and can no longer see steam coming off it. Feeling how cold the ceramic is gone. I pick up my mug and stand from the table, my vocation the sink. I toss the iced fluid and give them my back, waiting for them to vacate my home. We're not here to change anything, Lorraine. I hear Christine's voice. 
What's going to happen has already been put in motion. We're just hoping to avoid any needless violence. I spin on her, my face hot and contorted. What the heck does that mean? I thunder. She says nothing. Again, I look down the cast iron basin by my waist, waiting for them to be gone. We cannot save you, Lorraine, she says. No one can. But maybe we can save Tobias and Jennifer. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what any good parent would want for their children? A tremor courses my spine. I grip the counter ledge, my knuckles white. Get out of my house. I don't hear them get up. I don't hear the squeal of rubber over the linoleum or the creaking of footsteps. When I look back at the dinner table, both of them are gone, vanished like into thin air. The only indication of their ever being here is the cups of tea, which are now like ice, almost freezing to the touch. Near livid, I grab the vacuum and begin cleaning ferociously around the house. I then toss the machine to the ground, too flustered and begin a sweep of all the rooms, looking for any weapons that Jennifer might have stashed at this rotation, anything that I might have missed. I start with hers and then Tobias's bedroom, turn both upside down but find nothing, still not satisfied. I storm down to the basement to check the spots where Jennifer hid her weapons, the last two rotations, and the crawl space below the floor. I've already checked it five times this month and the sixth time yields and no new results. I then remind myself that I've already found her annual arms cash at the school in her locker. I forego the rest of my search. Still far from calm, I go to the kitchen and pour myself a whopping glass of Chardonnay, downing it within a minute and then refilling. After consuming half of my second glass, I check the casserole in the oven. It's fine, of course and I end up singeing the webbing of my hand from opening the door without another mitt. Sucking on the red, throbbing flesh between my thumb and forefinger, I grab the kitchen phone and dial the number of the creature. Morganston Legion and Associates. His voice blasts from the receiver. If we can't. Morganstern. I cut him off, my voice sounding like I've been chewing glass. Mentally, I recite my prepared ultimatum. After tomorrow, you better have fixed this dang trance and gotten my family back to normal. I swear to God, you will not like what happens if I'm dissatisfied in the next rotation. I try to work up the nerve to say this out loud, to curse him over the phone, but instead, my voice catches in my throat and I just croak and sputter like an idiot. Hello, Mrs. Claiborne, says the creature after a minute. I place the receiver back on its hook, ending the call. There's no point making idle threads because that's what they are, idle threads. What can I possibly do to Mr. Morganstern if this illusionary world keeps breaking down? What can I do at all? Sunday, December 25th, dinner. Christmas Day begins, as usual, this rotation. The kids, or at least Tobias, wakes me up at around 5, desperate to open up some of the presents gathered under the tree. As is custom, he can open the ones gifted to him for me and his dad, but must wait until our guests arrive to open the rest. Like on the previous rotation, I'm a bit choked up that Jennifer is elected to sleep in this morning, not bothering to see what Santa Claus has left her. Irksome still is that Joshua, my husband and father to my children, have not shown up yet.
It doesn't take the wildest imagination to figure out where he's spending his nights. Still no bother. He always shows up at around dinner time. I make Tobias the typical Christmas breakfast. A serving of eggs benedict on a toasted English muffin with yellow hollandaise sauce drizzled on top. Just a whiff of that edgy, savory aroma causes my head to fog with delightful holiday nostalgia. I make a plate for myself beside a cup of black coffee and a third serving for Jennifer, which ends up going cold before being slung into the wastebasket. For the actual dinner party, I have everything that I need. I've made all the desserts four days prior, baked the potato casserole yesterday, chopped up all the veggies and made the stuffing. All I need to do is pop the turkey in the oven. I grit my teeth and sulk a bit, figuring that Josh won't show up in time to carve the gosh dang bird. While waiting for the entree to cook, I while away the hours in the kitchen, reading a John Grisham novel. By five in the evening, everybody has arrived. My mother, my father, Joshua's parents, Edna Claiborne, Nee Walsh, and the glitchy hologram that now makes up my husband's brother, Freddy, and a half dozen more of my cousins, nieces, and nephews. Everyone who is supposed to be here has arrived. Everyone except for my husband. This is odd. He is usually late, yes, but he always makes it in time for dinner. Every rotation. Uh, this isn't good. Everybody asks where he's at, even Freddy. And I plaster on a glowy erectus smile and assure them that he must have just got caught up at work. The back of my neck nettled like a growling Doberman, knowing that he's likely with that girl. Painfully, I keep my chin up the rest of the meal and carry on during dessert and coffee like I always do. I regale my dinner guests about my darling children, bragging while simultaneously making small complaints about them, even while Jennifer and Tobias are sending optical arrows my way. I know patronizing, but this is what all young children must endure until they marry and have families of their own. Truth is, it's all an act this year. All I can think about is what I'm going to do if Joshua doesn't show before midnight, and how I'll find him if I need to. The temptation to call Morgan Stern is there, but I know that he won't help. This is my end of the bargain, my responsibility. By 8.30, most of our guests had piled out into their cars, ready to brave the snowy December night on their journeys back home. Joshua's parents are the first to leave, disappointed their son couldn't be there, followed by Edna and the thing that has replaced Freddy. Before leaving, Freddy takes a moment to speak to me about his brother. It's a battle on my part not to recoil from him. The flashing glimpses of his true form revealing a figure both malignant and misshapen recalling old photographs of the elephant man. I don't retain a word of what he says. Behind my agonizing smile, I'm estimating where to find Joshua and how quickly to do it. If he's at work, it would only take about an hour, maybe more given the bad weather. If he's with the girl, that could take longer. I would have to take care of Tobias and Jennifer first in that case. Yeah, it's best to get those two out of the way. By 10 o'clock, the guests are all gone. I've changed out of my dinner dress and into some comfy house clothes. Despite my fears that she would resist, Jennifer agrees to sit down with Tobias on the living room couch and complete one of our annual rituals, watching old movies on the TV. It's a little too early for the televised rendition of A Christmas Carol, starring Alistair Sam, 
so I put on a burnt DVD for my favorite VHS, the classic comedy short, Dinner for One. More of a New Year's Eve tradition, I know, but my family is Norwegian, and I just can't resist the sweet little comedy. As Heinz Piper introduces the sketch in his regal German, the sentimental old-timey music filling her home, I retreat into the kitchen and grab two of my children's favorite mugs. Frosty the Snowman for Jennifer and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer for Tobias. I pluck the rubber gloves from the lip of the sink and fit them over my hands before putting on a blue paper mask. I'm now ready to reach into the cupboard under the sink and retrieve the vial of cyanide. I have done it now at least ten times and it's pretty easy. Just to drop in the bottom of both cups and then the cocoa powder. And then hot water and then stir. I know better than to carry the mugs to my kids. Too much risk of exposure. I don't want to kill myself before it's my time. But this year, I wait to do any of that. To even unscrew the cap from the vial of poison. My husband has still not arrived. It won't do anything if he isn't here too. And worse, what if he arrives and finds the children dead? Will he presume that they're asleep? Not if he catches them in their last agonizing spasms for life. No, I need to deal with these two and then I can worry about Josh. And if I need to brave the night's howling gale to find him, well then so be it. As though answering my prayers, a white light crosses the kitchen via the window, indicating a vehicle entering our cul-de-sac. I look out the window and see Josh's 95 Lincoln Town Car. It lurches up the drive, the front driver's seat side wheel rolling over the lawn and sinking into the snow. He's drunk. Hastily, I unscrew the cap of the vial and drip the poison into both mugs and pour the chocolate mix, and I stir the hot water. Tobias, Jennifer, come get your hot cocoa. It's on the kitchen counter. I call to them, making sure to put some distance between myself and the spiked beverages before removing my mask. I had already given Josh's decanter a boost hours ago. A triple whiskey neat, being his yuletide tradition while vegging out with the kids. I'm still wearing rubber gloves when I hear my husband stumbling against the front door. Jogging toward it, I witness the door rip open. My husband standing slantwise, still clutching the brass knob. An eddy of snow preceding him. With his disheveled trench coat and hair damply dotted white, he looks like a euphoric Jimmy Stewart at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. As I had suspected, he is drunk. But still, this is all very new. Merry Christmas, love, he says, his voice an octave too loud. Despite the weather, I can see that he's flushed and sweaty. His eye looks like a pea swimming in a tiny saucer of buttermilk. Without closing the door, he leans in and embraces me. I'm too stunned to reciprocate. This hasn't happened before. Neither before nor during the rotations. Feeling the brush of his 10 o'clock stubble against my cheek, I smell the sour smoke of scotch through his pores. And then he whispers into my ear. I ended it. I almost didn't hear him. The bludgeoning repetition of the same disappointment. Year after year hardening me to any sliver of hope. He then pulls back although he's still crushing me. And his nose is a mere inch from mine. Did you hear me? He asks. His whiskey laced breath crinkling my nose. I ended it. I'm done with that woman. All I want is you, Lo. All I want is you. Breathless, I feel my heart punch its way through my ribcage. 
My throat constricts and my eyes turn damp. No longer bothered by Josh's single malt heltosis. I lean in and kiss him hard in the mouth. He reciprocates and for a fleeting moment we just stand there in the gusty doorway, swapping spit like teenagers. Remembering myself I pull back, knowing that the ritual is not complete. I think we both need a drink. I whisper into his collarbone, trying to seek you to what must be done. I then feel him pull away from me. Are you kidding? He remarks, knitting his brow, a sloppy smirk curling his cheek. I'm well into the bag, though. The last thing I need is a pick-me-up. No, what I need is my wife on top of me. The front door slams shut, and I can feel his strong arms begin to pull me into the house. My mind races to plan B and I grab my handbag from the coat rack. You don't perform the same ritual every year and not have a backup when things go sideways. The first time, nothing went according to plan and it all ended very messily. Josh doesn't notice me carrying a purse as he drunkenly dance walks me across the shoe mat and into the front hallway. I notice but don't register that Tobias is the only one planted in front of the TV as we pass. Where's Jennifer? Figuring that he won't make it up the stairs in his condition, I opt to lead him into his all but shuttered study. The children surely won't hear us in there. Inside the room is pitch dark, musty and dry. It smells of mothballs and old yellowing paper. Before I know what's happening, Josh has his trousers around his ankles and has me propped up, spread eagle on the desk. I let him yank down my black tights and underwear as we kiss and grope feverishly. I'm grasping a chilled lapel of his wool cashmere coat. I wrench him in closer, still with the wherewithal to place my handbag beside me well within rage. I feel him inside me and begin to groan. In his inebriated state, we aren't so much making love as we are attempting to parallel park. While he grunts and grinds, thrusting with all the precision of a blind archer, I zip open my bag and fish out the item, a cyanide-filled syringe. You must understand I don't want to do it. I don't want this moment to end, but end it must. And I need to keep up my end of the bargain with Mr. Morganstern. After the better part of a minute, my husband's groans peek into piercing wails. He's taken his slobbered chin off my shoulder and is now arching towards the ceiling. Realizing his near climax, I choose the only course of action that will be both undetected and mercifully quick, reaching around him with my left hand to get a handful and then piercing his buttocks with the needle in my right. I feel him clench into an iron clamp in fear that he's about to pull away, but he instead continues to go at it. I keep both hands in place, burying the plunger with my thumb. After another couple seconds, I feel him finish. Like a tranquilized zoo animal, he goes limp and he drimps off of me, falling with a thud to the floor. He lies there, limbs akimbo, and begins to spasm and convulse. Chote, I look away, trying desperately not to envision the look of horror in his face, or the white foam bubbling over his lips like a cauldron. It doesn't take long before the tremors that seize his body cease, and he's lying cold and stiff across the carpet. One down, two to go. Three if you're counting me. Panting, sweating more than a little blue, I take a moment to compose myself, pulling my pants back on and scanning the otherwise forgotten room. 
I look down at the other side of my husband's desk where he would have sat, and that's when I see it. A thick strand of brown hemp rope protruding from underneath. I follow it under the desk and find what I had feared. My daughter's survival kit, consisting of the coiled mile of rope, rolls of duct tape, fighting gloves, and various knives and blades. Crap, I hiss. I then wonder if her stash of weapons at the school was just a ruse. A trick so that I wouldn't check the house as thoroughly as I had on previous rotations. How could I have been so stupid? I then hear the slightest creak like the house settling and swivel my head toward the door. I had locked it when we came in, but at the little horizontal opening at the bottom, I can see the shadow of two feet standing just outside. Jennifer. For the moment, it occurs to me that I have the only available key to the office, assuming that Josh has either lost his key or has it on his person. It then seemed perfectly natural to just wait it out try to negotiate with Jennifer through the locked door, since there's no way for her to get in and I have all her weapons at my disposal. Of course, that won't do though. Midnight is approaching and I can't be sure that either she or her brother have taken their medicine. With her, Shirley standing outside the door, there's no reason for me to believe that they have drunk their toxic beverages. Plus, how did she get in here before? Swallowing my instinct for motherly love and my desire to hunker down, I take up one of the blades, a serrated steel hunter's knife, from under the desk and creep toward the door. In one swift movement, I unlock the door and wrench it open. As I had suspected, my daughter tries to sprint past me charging for her stash, but she doesn't get too far. Having anticipated this move, I kick my foot in front of her path and send her diving to the floor. Landing on her belly and the heels of her hands, she lets out a gasp before rolling over onto her back. Her belly exposed to me like the neck of a wildebeest to a lion. I sink down next to her, one hand out to soothe her while the other holds her ready the knife. Shh, it's alright, sweetheart. I croon, drawing nearer. Her tears and gasp for air are like pins in my heart. But regardless, I must be strong. It's just like when you were little and you fell down and scraped your knee. Mama's gonna kiss the boo-boo and make it all better. As though she had been playing possum, Jennifer grabs a hold of my wrist and then presses a forearm into my elbow, before rolling over onto her belly and putting all her weight down on my arm. I squeal both in shock and pain as I feel her drive me down into the carpet, like a wrestler on TV. She doesn't keep me down for long now. I mean, how could she? Her being five foot nothing and weighing 90 pounds soaking wet. A scuffle, a real Donnybrook breaks out. The two of us biting, scratching, tearing at each other's hair. I mostly dominate, able to almost stand back up while Jennifer latches onto me like a giant flailing barnacle. Her nails dig and pry at my wrist, trying to get to the knife, but I never relinquish it. After I can't say how long, I finally get squarely to my feet and with all my might, manage to hurl Jennifer off my shoulders, sending her crashing again to the floor, this time on her back. I hear her breath flee her body, knowing this time she really does have the wind knocked out of her. Not taking any chances, I stomp my foot heel first into her stomach and keep it there. She squirms and struggles with what strength she has left, but it isn't enough. I know that I have her. Two down almost, two more to go. Using my heel to keep her pinned, I find my balance and take aim at Jennifer's heart, raising the knife Michael Myers style. 
I hold it up high to get a good stabbing motion, but then I see something out of the tail of my eye, a blur of a human rushing towards me. It's Tobias, and he's carrying something that I can't make out. I turn too late. Tobias, no! Something long strikes me in the back of the head, the pain wrapping around to my temple. Everything goes black. Sunday, December 25th, almost midnight. I wake, I don't know how many hours later. The back of my head is throbbing, ballooning, like from the most unimaginable hangover. The headache is the first thing that I notice. The second is the feeling of something coarse and constricting around my arms. I look down and discover that I am lashed to a chair. My arms are bound by rope and duct tape. I can't see them but can feel my ankles likewise as shackled to the chair legs. In front of me, I see my children, Jennifer and Tobias. They're looking down at me like executioners. It doesn't fully register at first, but Jennifer has something. A wad of folded paper in her hand. I try to speak, but then think better of it. For whatever reason, they haven't duct taped my mouth shut. Instead of speaking, I take a moment to study each of their faces, as best as I can through my understandably hazy vision. Jennifer's face is hard and determined, though I see a light in her eyes that I thought had died several months ago. However, when I look into Tobias's eyes, I see fear, real fear and trepidation, an opening. What time is it? I ask, my voice hoarse and cracking, trying to pull at any heartstrings. This is an easy act to pull off since I genuinely am panicked about the time. Jesus, my head hurts. Listen to me, you have to tell me what time it is. Chewing his another lip, Tobias turns to his sister, deferring to her. I look at her and then glance at the papers in her hand. Are those more hideous portraits of Uncle Freddy? She says nothing in response. By then I know that she knows that she has the upper hand. The time is on her side, not mine. Okay, okay, listen to me. I beg, writhing in my constraints, desperate to wriggle free. Crap, she's tied these ropes tight. Listen to me, you two need to loosen my ropes, all right? You need to let me out of this chair right now. Jennifer doesn't stir, and then she says one word. Why? Right then, I get this unexpected sensation of deja vu. You would think that would be something that I get all the time, but in this moment, I can't place where the feeling is coming from, or when I had experienced this before. Why? I bleed, still afraid and trying to play it up for sympathy. Because, because if we don't do something, something before midnight, we're all going to die. Jennifer's a rock, but Tobias begins to stir. It's, it's ten minutes to midnight, he says, saying it as though afraid his words might ignite a powder keg. Jennifer throws him a quick look. Relieved, I let out an exacerbated sigh. Good, then we're not too late. Untie me. How are we going to die, Lorraine? Asked Jennifer, more as a charge than a question. Why did you kill Dad? There isn't enough time. Well, you're going to have to make time. Sighing heavily, I nod, acquiescing to my daughter's condition. Ten or more years ago on Christmas, your father came home drunk from the office, much like he did tonight. I had caught him having an affair with his secretary, 
I told him earlier in the week that I was going to leave Emma. I was going to divorce him and get full custody of you two. You know what that means, a full custody. They both nod their heads, clearly understanding that I'm not being pedantic. So he got mad, really mad and told me that he would sooner see me dead than in court. You two have to understand, a divorce can cost a lot of money, especially if you've been caught cheating on your spouse. At the time, I just took what he said as him letting his emotions get the better of him. I never thought of it as a threat until it was too late. Anyway, he came home drunk on Christmas after all our guests had left, like he did tonight, but this time with a gun. He shot me, shot the two of you, and then turned the gun on himself. He shot me first, but only once and in the chest. The bullet had pierced my lung, and I think he did this intentionally so that I would suffer. Now I know this is going to sound ridiculous. Incredible, but you must believe me. This is true. This is what happened next. A man that I had never seen before appeared in the room as I lay there dying. He was tall, very pale, even chalky, with frizzy red hair. He wore a loud, checkered suit and tan shoes. He knelt beside me and offered me a deal. If I were willing to complete a ritual every Christmas day before midnight, we would be able to live this year over and over in perfect happiness, or near perfect happiness. All we had to do was complete the ritual. Otherwise, when we died, we'd be banished to the darkness, complete oblivion. No afterlife, good or bad, just nothing. I made the deal so that the three of us could live out some semblance of a happy existence. That's why I need you to untie me, and then drink your cocoa in the kitchen. Silence permeates her home. I don't hear a thing save for the faint voices floating from the TV room. Knowing that I have to move this along, I venture a look up at my daughter, but she's unmoved. That's the same story that you told me before. Taken aback, I rock in my imprisoning chair. What did you just say? What kind of a gun did Dad use? Squinting, I shook my head. My face flushed. I don't know. I don't know anything about guns. But neither does Dad. Tobias chimes in. Digesting this, I soon realize an oversight of my story. Tobias is obsessed with those shooter games, which have instilled in him an interest in warfare, even world history as well as firearms. His father had always hated guns, has always hated guns and has never been shy proclaiming his hatred of them. Tobias, being the closest to Joshua, has probably observed this the most acutely. Of course, Joshua wouldn't use a gun. He wouldn't know how, let alone where to get one. Jennifer interrupts my internal dialogue. You told us this same made-up story a few years, or whatever ago, Lorraine. Or you told me Tobias here wouldn't listen to me the first time and was on your side. When you told me about it, I believed you because I snooped into daddy's emails and found all the messages to that lady. Jennifer then stops to have a little laugh. Having an affair, she says more to herself. That sounds like such an adult term, like a euphemism. That part of your story made sense. But then I did some research at the local library and found out that we have a no-fault divorce law here in Ontario. So it doesn't matter that Dad had an affair and you knew about it. So why would he kill us? Without the aid of these swelling goose egg, my brain is spinning. I've told her this before. 
Of course, I know Jennifer has tried to stop me in previous rotations, but I don't remember this kind of confrontation. I suppose since they're all the same, each rotation just blurred into one until... Look, look, I stammer out, still not ready to throw in the towel. I don't know what was in your daddy's head. I just, I just... You're a lawyer. Jennifer interrupts, just like daddy. There's no way you told us that as an honest mistake. You killed us. You killed us all. No. I thunder, my turn to cut her off. I tried to save you. I tried to save all of you. Why can't you understand that? Why can't you appreciate how much I've sacrificed? How much of my career and my very life I gave up for you? How can you be so selfish? I gave up being an assistant prosecutor for the city. Do you even know what that means? I could have been the city prosecutor, which would have laid the entire city, the whole country at my feet. How can you be so cruel, so ungrateful? I gave you everything, everything. I don't need to pretend anymore. The waterworks have started and they are real. No longer feeling the expanding throb at the back of my head, I let my chin and my collarbone and weep. The agony rushing through my heart has stripped all fleshy wants from my body. And then I hear the worst possible sound. One that hasn't visited my ears in over a decade. Our grandfather clock. The one standing in our living room. It begins to ring the twelve consecutive chimes announcing the arrival of midnight. I'm too late. I failed to keep my end of the bargain. What would Mr. Morgenstern do to me? And to us? The three of us just stand there wordless in the time it takes, the twelve consecutive bells punctuating my defeat with each resounding ring. My face wet with tears, I just stare mouth agape, miming a silent scream at my children. When it's over, Jennifer finally relieves me of her cindering stare. With a small sigh of her own, she instead looks down at the sheets of paper clutched in her tiny hands. Now you've done it, I hiss. I'm not trying to barter anymore, not trying to manipulate my children. I'm satisfied with taunting them, especially Tobias who stole on the fans. Now we'll be banished to the blackness, the darkness, to oblivion, and it's all your fault. I don't think so, Mom, says Jennifer unfolding the pages. Her voice is soft, even sweet. I grow nostalgic, thinking of the untainted little girl that I had made this cursed bargain for in the first place. I think you should read these. She then places three pieces of printed paper fanned out so I can read what was written on them, on top of my thighs. There are news articles, one from the Toronto Star, one from the Toronto Sun, one is even from the New York Post. They are all from December 2005. The first headline that catches my eye reads, Hideous murder in suburbia. Mother poisons son, stabs daughter, and causes daughter's death. A second reads, Extended family baffled. This wasn't the love that we knew. A third, Poison found on daughter and husband also. Original murder plot gone awry. After getting the picture, I stop reading and instead gawk at them marveling at their existence. Where did you get these? I ask. Well, in the library at the university... Jennifer answers. No newspapers would have printed these. I found them in the microfiche. That's where you can find things that aren't a part of this world you made. Shooting her a cutting look, I search her face, trying to figure out the lie. 
How did you know how to look in the microfiche? How did you even know what that was? To this, Jennifer is silent, averting her eyes from mine. It then dawns on me. Someone told you. Somebody pointed this out to you. Probably even planted them there. Who was it? Mrs. Park, Uncle Freddy. Aunt Edna. Wait, no. It was that woman, wasn't it? That wheelchair woman, Christine or Christine or something. Her evasion confirms my suspicion. It was that interferer, that agitator who came to my house yesterday. That home-wrecking crippled. Ugh. Her voice then dints inside my skull. What's going to happen has already been put in motion. We're going to leave now, Mommy. I hear Tobias's timid voice from somewhere in the room. I find him with a start, seeing that he's now holding one of Jennifer's blades. I don't want to leave you tied up, but we can't risk you attacking us. I'm going to cut the ropes around your arms, but not the ones around your legs. You should be able to untie those after we go. Please don't try anything after I cut you free. Please, Mommy. I don't say anything. There's nothing left to be said. I just sit there muttering to myself, feeling my constraints momentarily get tight and then loosen and release. I want to put up a fight. I want to reach up with my newly freed hands and tear my only son's eyes out from their sockets and then make a wild grab for Jennifer. But I don't. There's no point to it. The truth is, I lost everything years ago. Mommy, I hear Tobias's voice a final time. Can I ask you something before we go? I don't respond. I don't even acknowledge hearing him, knowing the question that he wants to ask. Tobias doesn't say anything further. The question laughed unsaid. Staring off into space, I am barely conscious of the front door swinging open, followed by the whistling gal encroaching into my home before being banished by the door slamming shut. I then become aware of the unmistakable murmur of an engine belonging to a large vehicle idling outside of our home. On inertia, I turn my head, twisting in the chair, trying to get a glimpse of at her driveway via the window. I'm too far and too low to the ground to get a good look, but I can still make out the dark shape of exhaust pluming up into the night sky, illuminated by the reflected yellow glow of high-mounted headlights. At this moment, my mind whirling and sore, I don't know what to make of these strange, unseen vehicles. Now writing this, I'm certain who it was. Christine and her mute. They had found my children and poisoned their minds, turned them against me, and conspired to leave with them. Leave to God knows where. When I hear the crunch of heavy tires across the packs now, the fate of the purring motor, I know that they're gone. My bargain with Mr. Morgenstern is over. If you made it this far, you're probably wondering what the actual bargain was that I made with the creature, Mr. Morgenstern, a decade or so ago. How did my family and I come to relive the year 2005 over and over again? Well, here it is. Just like it was two days prior, my husband had asked to meet with me at the first cup coffee shop off Mavis. When I had first listened to his message on the answering machine, I didn't think anything of it. Ignorant, I presumed everything was fine. But when I got there, much as it always played out, he told me that he wanted a divorce. That he wasn't happy and he wanted to move on. At first, I thought he was playing some sort of joke on me. Some sort of cruel, devastating prank. But soon I realized that he was being earnest. 
especially after he had mentioned that he had met someone else. I broke down and wept, unabashed despite being in a hardly uncrowded coffee shop. We went back and forth as you might expect, but Josh had made up his mind that it was over between us. We settled on an agreement that he would at least come for Christmas dinner and not tell the kids until after the holiday. That afternoon, I didn't go to Jennifer or Tobias' school to pick them up. They were still enraptured in the ignorant bliss of their adolescence, and I aimed to keep it that way. Instead, I drove to a dingy motel in the outskirts of town, but not before picking up a fifth of vodka from the liquor store. Once I had arrived, I proceeded to get toasted in a squalid, bleach-reeking little bedroom. I can't explain why I didn't just do this at home, but I just couldn't. I needed to get away. I wasn't worried about driving home drunk either. As far as I was concerned, there was nothing left to live for. It was in that gloomy green room that I realized it wasn't just Josh that I was going to lose, but I was going to lose my children. Before you asked, no, there was nothing I had done that would have stripped me of custody, and Joshua wouldn't have wanted full custody anyway, not with this new lady on his arm. Now I was losing my children and that they were growing older and more independent and inevitably, they were going to leave me. Leave me for university, for college, or for just work. Leave me the way that Joshua was leaving me. I now know like I knew then that that was natural. All children leave eventually. They must and I know that. But I had never planned for that eventuality, not emotionally, not spiritually. It might have been the booze, but at that moment, in that dim, avocado realm, I felt the walls closing in on me, the very roof over my head collapsing. Everything that I had built, had dreamed of since I was a little girl, was falling apart, falling on top of my head. After a few more plastic cupfuls of vodka, I started reading the newspaper that I had picked up from the stand beside the check-in desk. Now it might come from me majoring in English Lit during my undergrad, but I've always found reading more relaxing than vegetating in front of the tube. Even in my inebriated state, I could make out most of the stories printed on the pulpy pages. Gradually, I found myself scanning sections that I wouldn't have bothered reading before. The sports section, the obituaries, and eventually the classifieds. It was there that I saw a very peculiar ad. Unhappy with your life, call us. We sell dreams by the skyfall. The corporate logo in the middle just said, Morgan Stern Legion and Associates. The tawdry little advert looked fittingly cheap with no color or pictures. The letters were ludicrously shaped and emblazoned. The whole thing just radiated of sleaze. We sell dreams by the skyfall, what rubbish. For no reason other than to get a cheap laugh, I drunkenly dialed the number. When someone answered and after enduring their kitschy slogan, I forgot what I had dialed for. Instead of having a laugh and asking any of the stupid questions that I had prepared, I broke down much like I had at the coffee shop and told the faceless stranger exactly what had happened, exactly what I was feeling and what I was afraid might happen in the immediate future. Everything, including my fears of my children eventually growing up and leaving me, leaving the old and wanted hag that I would inevitably become. I don't know what force compelled me to confide to the would-be receptionist like I did, but that's what happened. Once I was finished, nothing left to divulge except my sniffles. I didn't hear a dial tone. Instead, there was a long palpable silence from the other end, 
It was almost as though I could feel the other person chewing over what I had just rattled off to them. And then I heard a male voice say to me, Lorraine, get yourself sober and then drive up to her office at 948 McCallion Road. It's near Pacific Circle. We'll be expecting you. It was dark out by the time that I had managed to get a solid enough grip on my sobriety to drive to the address. It was in an industrial area of town, lots of warehouses and body shops. Their office was a one-story cinder block building, painted mustard, crammed on top of a small clearing in front of an ongoing construction site. It looked temporary and cheap, but the tall, luminescent windows, burning through the early dusk, had beckoned to me inside. A set of tinkling tin bells announced my arrival through the glass door. The room was devoid of life save for the percolating aquarium mounted next to the far wall. It didn't take long though before I heard footsteps approaching from the adjacent hallway. And that's when I first met the red-headed, used car salesman looking creature named Mr. Morganstern. He greeted me by name and shook my hand, and then guided me to his desk. There was nothing otherworldly or even strange about his appearance. He wore a green and orange suit, which looked like it was made from the same material as the carpet in my motel room, with a yellow tie and a scuzzy pair of tan shoes. His cologne was sweet-smelling, though he wore too much of it, no doubt to mask a lingering tobacco or whiskey odor. Even his voice was perfectly normal, though a bit high-pitched for someone his size and age. He wasn't muscular or fat but looked thick and durable, like a street lamp. I didn't need to learn anything about him. I could just sense from his presence that he wasn't human, and that he was evil. He pushed the obligatory box of Kleenex to my end of the desk and asked me one more time to relay what had happened and what my fears were. Dry-eyed, I recited what Joshua had told me of my anxiety-filled terrors of my children in the future. He listened without reacting his hands forming a tent beside his plump, liver-colored lips. When I was done, he made his offer to me as plain as possible. Kill my immediate family and then myself on any day of the year of my choosing, and my family and I would relive that year in blissful ignorance for eternity. The method of killing wouldn't matter. I just had to make sure that I committed the act in the same day every rotation, and then I didn't let on to anyone that what they were experiencing was an illusion. Only my family and I would be the actual souls reliving the year on lobe. Everyone else would be a projection of our memories and Morgan Stern's manipulation. When I first heard his proposition, I of course balked. Kill my family so that we could live together for eternity. What kind of psycho stuff was that? Why should I believe anything that he said? He then asked me if I remembered a man named Francois Ouliette. I had, and it was a horrific story of an investor who had been driven to death from an unrecoverable debt. He had slain his wife and kids and then himself in a weekend. This had occurred in a city not far from ours in 2003, and it was reported on all the news networks for weeks. Mr. Morganston then rose from his desk and motioned for me to follow him down the hall from which he had come. It took me to a vast azure filing room where he pulled open a long metal drawer and proceeded to thumb through the tabs. His hand eventually landed on a single beige folder. He pulled out the manila file and he handed it to me. Inside was a series of black and white photographs and newspaper clippings. 
I inspected them and saw a familiar face. Francois. He was smiling happy, surrounded by his equally contented family. The articles reported of his opulent lifestyle. Summer homes in the Bahamas, yachts, resorts. What was truly strange were the dates printed on each picture and article. 2003-2005, 2010-2012. How was it possible? The man and his family were long dead, and it was still 2005. I gawked up at the creature and he stared back at me with hooded eyes and an undefined smile on his face. It took me a minute before I found my tongue. How do I know these are real? I asked in a breathy laugh. The obvious question. Of course, they could be fakes. Doctored photos and phony stories, but holding them in my hands, feeling the fantastic joy radiating from the paper, I knew they were the genuine article. I mean, they had to be. You don't know, honey bunch. Mr. Morgenstern answered, sliding the drawer back into place, his voice blunt and concrete. I could show you a million photographs and articles like those, and I could bore you into a coma with a thousand testimonials from other clients, now enjoying their blissful pockets of existence. But none of that matters in the end. You have to decide. Do you believe it? Are you willing to believe? I was. I was very willing and ready. I'd love to tell you that I waited a day or two before deciding to carry out the deed, agonizing over the mortality of what had to be done. But I didn't, not really. I didn't need any more goading or assurance. I only waited two days so as to prepare everything for that night, and so I could have one last Christmas dinner with my family, one that would last forever. So that was that. I settled on his proposition and up until now, I have fulfilled my end of the agreement. He had never asked for anything in return, as though the limbo of 2005 was his payment for the gruesome act that I was to commit. Though I'm sure in some other ghastly way he made more than a handsome profit off the deal. For ten or more years I've done this, living in near perfect harmony with my husband and children. That is, until Jennifer got wise and had to ruin it. Now, let me address the eight-ton elephant in the room. How could I do it? How could a mother do such a thing to her own children? Can anybody hearing this honestly say they wouldn't just jump at the opportunity to live forever with their loved ones? Can anyone say that if given the choice, they wouldn't repeat the same year, hack the same day, if it was the one of their choosing? We all chase nostalgia that perfect moment or opportunity long gone. We all know the pang of regret, and the nibbling power of fantasies of what could have been. Very few of us actually seek out the truth. Most of us are happy living on our own daily play-acting, hoping that we project an image convincing enough to fool our relatives and neighbors. Oh, I know. I'm not answering your real question. How could I kill my own kids? Well, that part is simple. It was part of the bargain I made with Mr. Morganstern to keep them for eternity. To keep them from ever growing up. From ever leaving me. But Lorraine, you protest. Why wouldn't you want them to grow up? Didn't you want to see them graduate from high school, from college? Didn't you want to attend your only daughter's wedding? These examples that you're mentally listing are my point exactly. We don't live for our kids' survival. We live for the moments. We don't pine after our children's wedding because we're happy to see them married or in love, or starting their own family. Though we may like weddings as a symbol of all those things. We only live for the moments. These moments that we ate to revisit and stay stuck in. 
That's why we take photographs. Why we use camcorders. We don't want to progress or even get to the next exquisite moment. We want to preserve those moments and live them over again and again and again and again. And by the way, Tobias and Jennifer would inevitably have learned this pain themselves. In a way, I was sparing my children from these snowballing malaise of the years. Is that answer not sufficient for you? Maybe you need to sit on it for a day or two, then you'll see. Trust me, you'll know what I mean. Now, don't you dare judge me. Don't you dare tell me that I'm a bad mother. I didn't grow up in suburbia or even in the city. I grew up in a rural hamlet outside of Hamilton. My father was away three quarters of the year working the mines of the Canadian Shield, then working the power lines in every part of the country, but the one that my brother and I lived in. My mother, a pinched, gaunt woman, raised me and my brothers like she had lost some monstrous bet. She believed in the adages, children should be seen and not heard, and spare the rod to spoil the child. Forget leaving welds, she broke bones, bones some of which never healed the right way. My oldest brother didn't make it before his 18th birthday. For longer than I can recall, all I ever wanted was to get out and find someone, to get married and have the perfect little family, just like the Huxtables or the Cleavers on TV. In fact, since I was a little girl, I wanted a little girl that I could name Jennifer. That fantasy was my only outlet, my only escape from my hamlet and that house. I suppose yes. I was chasing an idea more than a tangible goal. I wanted the family scene in serial commercials. I wanted that over the arduous work of raising two human beings and dealing with the heartache of seeing them grow up. Fine, I'm a romantic, a plastic romantic, perfectly tacky, and out of touch with how the real world works. I admit it, but don't you dare tell me that I didn't love my children. After all, what purer love is there than the love of your dreams, your ideals? It's been two days now since Jennifer and Tobias drove off in that vehicle, and the same van I presume belongs to Christine and her mute. Nothing has happened yet. Mr. Morgenstern has not called me, nor is anyone for that matter. I don't even know if I'm still in 2005, or if I'm even on the same planet. It feels like I'm the last living soul on Earth. Joshua is starting to smell, and it's hard to believe, but after all this death, I've never had to dispose of a body. There was no need until now. I can't bring myself to touch him. Somehow contact with the body after it's dead seems wrong. Perverse. I see blowflies hovering outside his office door. I hear them buzzing incessantly. Even the dead of winter can't stop the flies. Pretty soon I won't be able to stand it. I look outside and only see the endless snow. Neither plowed nor shoveled. The garbage uncollected. I don't know what will happen to me when I finally step outside my door. I'm just typing this out on my computer, not hoping that anyone will read it exactly, but trying to get it all down, trying to steal myself before the final plunge into what lies beyond my door and to what awaits me outside my home. That should do it for this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. You're awesome for making it all the way to the end, and please know that I always appreciate your support. And I also appreciate the support of this week's sponsors, Audible. Listen to Daniel X Genesis today at audible.com slash genesis. And HelloFresh. 
Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across the 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. I hope you're having an awesome morning, day, or night, wherever you may be in the world. Make sure that you stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, stay creepy.